Welcome to episode 137 of No Challenges Remaining. It's our final episode of 2015, Courtney. The finish line is in sight, and you're a winner. How you doing? Is it really a finish line when basically it means you just need to have to like start running the 28.6 or 26.8 miles again? 26.2, yeah. Um, no, it, sure, point yeah. two. <laughs> I am not a marathoner. I don't know if people knew this or not not really my game that's, that's, that's fine but no i think no it's definitely just like crossing a line on a track and the track keeps going it's round this didn't become a straight line linear sport at any point and yeah the gap is so short there's not much of a cool down period on this track but i'm feeling relatively ready to go for next time i feel like this has been a, a good restful fall for me all in all you how, how are you feeling yeah. about because we're i'm leaving on wednesday morning to fly to Brisbane, and you're leaving two days later? Correct. I leave on January 1st. Well, the, yeah. I mean, you've had a Serena off-season. Yeah, exactly. Right? So Ben shut his season down after uh, the U.S. Open, so devastated as he was, <laughs> and uh, got his life in order and prepared for what should be a a, uh, a grueling yet verge of history type trek through 2016. Uh, I, Carolina Pliskova, did it <laughs> and kept on trucking after the Open. So, yeah, I think your take on the offseason is a little bit different than my take on the offseason. I would not mind another four weeks. Well, did you know, speaking of Carolina Pliskova's overscheduling, which I feel like has been a regular feature this fall on NCR, <laughs> um, she's not playing the first week of the year. She's taking that week. I know, yeah. So, yeah. That's good, but kind of like a so, weird week to take off. It's like one week where everybody plays, and she's like, nope, not this one for me. It, it's the week that you play and then you don't play the second week because you get to Melbourne and you get there in advance and in plenty of time. So I don't know, you know, Plisco's going to Plisco. Who knows? Who knows indeed. So on this show, we're going to look back at things that happened in 2015 with a whole bunch of remember winning. Uh, it's going to be fun and light and whimsical and all sorts of fun stuff like that. And then after, as our rant rave, just give you guys a heads up so you don't zone out and you know, wander into this part unaware. We're going to be talking about Making a Murderer, the new Netflix show, which captivated both me and Courtney. It came out earlier this month, uh, 10 episodes on there. And so we'll talk about that, uh, similar to the way we did the serial rant rave this, this time last year, pretty much. Uh, you know, don't listen if you haven't listened, if you want plan to listen to that later, because it will be our version of a spoiler special. So all that in mind, ready to talk, look back at things. One last look back. Let's go. All right. Let's first look back, actually, not 2015 specific really at all. But the one news item that happened this week is that we officially were informed of the retirement of Robin Bocarl Soderling. Uh, Robin retired, having not played since 2011. Robin announced his official retirement from the tour after a career that was really peaking pretty much more or less in 2011 before he was sidelined with Mono. And was never able to make it back. Uh, obviously, I think him making a full-fledged comeback, it seemed not entirely likely. But there was some talk about him coming back a little bit earlier this fall. So the timing was a little bit surprising, maybe, after all that. Uh, Courtney, what do you remember most about Robin Soderling? And I guess, any thoughts on the announcement? Or was it just sort of inevitable? Um, I mean, I think that it was inevitable. I think that even if he was to make a return, it would be 
um, you know, more of a, a moral victory yeah. than anything that he would have accomplished on court. I mean, nothing that I don't, I just think the game has progressed to a point where in the men's game that if he stepped in, yeah, he would just be playing for pride, uh, not trying to replicate the results that he had. Um, you know, two-time French Open finalists caused, you know, at least on the men's side, probably the biggest upset that we've seen Cer- in men's tennis. Certainly in the conversation, yeah. When yeah, he, you know. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Ben. Oh, I was going to say, when he, yeah, just to make it obvious to those you don't know who, when he beat Nadal in the fourth round of the 2009 French Open, which stood until this year as Nadal's only French Open loss in like his first 10 years of playing it. Yeah, and uh, and Robin Bo Carl, I mean, he was just, it's funny because his kind of rise through the men's game during that, that time period of 2008, 2009, 2010 really coincided with the, the start and the quote-unquote flourishing of my first tennis blog, 40 yep. Deuce. Yep. And uh, one of the things that I used to do on that blog, if people didn't read it, which not many people really did, honestly, um, is that uh, I just kind of made up narratives <laughs> out of nowhere. Um, some, some might say that I still do that. I don't know. But um, where I just kind of made people heroes and villains as I chose to, however I chose to make them, almost like I was like tennis was my own little dollhouse. And I was like, you're a good guy. You're a bad guy, irrespective of whether or not the truth was was there. And so with Robin Bocarl, it was just fun to treat him like a villain. Primarily, not because of anything about him. He was actually a really nice guy. Um, Swedish, you know, I mean, totally harmless in a lot of ways. But he had that look, you know, kind of the snarl. He had that big game where he just looked like he was throwing haymakers off the forehand side, very pancake style uh, forehand take back. And at the same time, his last name was Soderling. So I just called him General Sod. Uh, which is a nod to General Zod of Superman 2, the best Superman movie. Neil before Zod, all that. Anyway, <laughs> super nerdy. Um, but yeah, and so it was really fun to just constantly, every single thing he did, to paint it in the light, in, you know, lights, in a very evil light. So yeah, so I am. I have very fond memories of my time with with Robin Bill Carl, and he blocked me on Twitter. I was gonna, and I never I tweeted it. <laughs> I was gonna like, didn't he block you on Twitter after all this? And I was gonna ask also. Okay, so I will sort of take that statement and a little bit analyze it because I'm not sure. I don't think this was at all an arbitrary decision to cast Soderling as a villain. I think Soderling casted himself that way, and I think that that was something that was so refreshing about Soderling in a pre-Rosal world to fuck with the other Nadal upset of note. I mean, Soderling was in a time of absolute big four and really big two, just Federer and Nadal, absolute dominance. He was like one of the very few people who seemed undaunted and unimpressed in his own way by those guys and he was not content to just you know myth making be like wow those guys are so good and just you know too good mate the way Leighton Hewitt sort of seemed to capitulate a little bit Soderling went in there just like ready to brawl and not bowing to anybody and it the one I said after he retired the moment that stands out to me the most is not the Nadal beating at French Open it's when he played Nadal two years one or two years earlier at Wimbledon and it's like long rain delay match oh yeah really feisty and nasty and pulling of the shorts exactly and and Nadal was like taking a lot of time as per usual coming out for the beginning of the fifth set I believe after a lot more rain delays and then like after taking a while uh, Nadal like paused like hold up the balls or something and Soderling just kind of lost it and like this like grand mocking of like 
stomping around and like yanking at his shorts which let's be clear like by the spectrum of general sports trash talk this is nothing to mock somebody <laughs> for this obvious thing they do that's kind of weird honestly picking at your button it all was still new and people were still like remarking about it people think it's normal now fine and it's Which, also weird that people think it's normal now it's it's not normal it's not any more normal now but he, that he had the gall or like the emperor has ill-fitting clothes eye about him to say you know hey you're a weirdo i'm gonna make fun of you being a bully on some level i guess sure but also it's a head-to-head competition and why hold punches was refreshing and it was something when he did beat i mean he beat broke not only the nadal streak remember but he the next year ended federer's streak of 23 straight slam semis which is an insane number to look back on 23 straight slam semis that federer had made um until soderling beat him in the quarters of a 2010 french open so this was a guy who rose to the occasion in a pre in a way that nobody's really done consistently since since Vavrinka, if you want to say Vavrinka's done it consistently, or I guess Djokovic in some way disrupted that and Del Potro, but Soderling was the first one and he was sort of the most full frontal about it in a way that I I appreciated. And yeah, I think the villainy was right. I think he pissed a lot of fan bases off. He was not popular. He was missed a lot more than he was liked at the time. Absence made the heart grow a lot fonder for. Robin Soderling. People missed his brashness. People missed his general, yeah, fearlessness and interfaceness. Yeah. I don't I mean, think he I was think... popular at all at the time. No, no, no. He wasn't popular at all. And when I say that I, may, I kind of created the narrative out of nothing, I don't mean that. But I, what I guess I mean is that nowadays, if Forty Deuce was still running, it would be, I'm 100% positive that Fobio, Fabio Fanini would be my long-running villain. Sure. And he is far more villainous in terms of his on-court antics, his quotes, his demeanor, the way that he is, his personality, than Robin Soderling was. Soderling was, at the time, relatively speaking, I think that you give great context in terms of like the what men's tennis looked like when Robin, Robin Soderling decided to be him. Insofar as like, yeah, that, that Robin Soderling, you know, uh, tugging at his shorts was the most, you know, offensive thing that anybody could possibly do. Yeah. And that that in and of itself is when he cast himself as the villain because everybody else was pretty much, you know, bowing to the kings. Yeah. Um, and it was a very, oh, look, we have number one and number two and they're just so nice to each other. And they're just, isn't it great? Isn't it so gentlemanly to and see two men? They shared a plane men. once. Remember, like, people, like, yeah. flipped out about Roger and Ruff it sharing a plane this weirdest. Plan. I was like, get over yourselves, you dummies. Like, this is sports. Like, if they do it, great. But that's not the norm, and it shouldn't be the norm. No, like, it shouldn't be the goal either. It shouldn't be the goal either. Exactly. I wish that more tennis players and agents understood that. But, you know, Robin Carl, he had the moxie that Thomas Burdick wishes he had. Yeah. Burdick, Burdick could use Soderling. He, 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 Burdick like gets to the line and then he backs away. At the end of the day, he can't close on his desire to be a villain. And I feel like Robin Bocarl did. How good or potentially disastrous of a coaching hire could that be if Burdick hired Soderling? Like they don't That'd have totally amazing. dissimilar whip, to, not totally dissimilar yeah. weapons. And yeah, just Burdick needs that sort of Fearless. And obviously Soderling was not like he had a couple big wins, but he also had a couple chokes in his time after those wins. Remember there's one loss against I think it was Nadal at Wimbledon where he was up like four or five love in the first set and then lost in easy straights and just sort of got, you know, the same way that Rosal has a sense against Nadal. I mean, these things happen. Yeah, I think that overall his career is a lot to be happy with and his 
not that he went out on top on a level, but just on a side note, his la- have you seen if you look back at like his last tournament was Bustad, which was like the Swedish Open. Yeah. And his his run there was unbelievable. I don't think anybody will ever have as good a last tournament as Robin Sutherland. Let me just run through his scores here. He playing in his last tournament, he was ranked number five. He beat and he got a bye in the first round, then beat Diego Junquiera, six oh six one. Starachi, who was seated back then, uh, six three six four. Then Burdich, six one six love in the semis, and then Ferrer, two and two in the final. That's, that is dominant. That's and he never played another match. What a weird, what a way to go out. Not that he was thinking he was going out at that time, but I mean, that's not a bad note to end on in your in your ATP activity page. Very true. Yeah. No. I mean, he he was. I don't know. I, it may surprise many people to hear. It. I have an incredibly soft spot in my heart for Robin Bocarl. He just was, yeah, he was everything that I wanted him to be. And I obviously turned him into something else. But he was also like actually a very nice guy. Like he was pretty soft spoken. He had this very kind of childlike smile. His girlfriend, fiance now, I think wife, uh, her name was Jenny. I think mother of their and two we, kids. Yeah. yeah, mother of their two kids. And every time he talked about Jenny, his eyes kind of just lit up. I mean, he was just very adorable. He was sweet in his own way, for sure. And I remember him talking at the in his French Open uh, concession runner-up speech when he lost to Roger about, like, my coach and I were yoking about how... Yoking. When, he kept saying yoking. He said yoking, like, four times in the sentence, <laughs> and it just cracked me up. Oh, my coach I forgot yoking. about yoking. Yeah. Remember when yoking? Remember when yoking? Oh, single tear. <laughs> also related, remember when? Remember when we were vacationing in the Alps? Yes. And you were on the phone with Robin Bocarl. So Robin Soderling, <laughs> we I missed him completely in my my first when I started doing the tour. Well, I didn't miss him completely. I guess it probably would have been eh, maybe like Cincinnati with him at the same time once, but he wasn't like high on my radar at that point. Anyway, I didn't really know him that well. Never went to any slams that he was at or anything because I got mostly into it fall 2011 when I started with the Times, and he. I was doing a story on Swedish tennis in 2013 and like I've been trying to get in touch with him for days and he had been like out hunting or something and finally he came up this time uh, that he could call and it was while Courtney you and I were on the Bernina Express that's right it's like this scenic panoramic windowed train in Switzerland we were having like a few days off there before we went on to Istanbul I believe to vacation which was very nice and highly recommend Switzerland if you can afford it if you can afford yeah it's pricey maybe don't stay long but it's uh or just prepared to be hungry and thirsty, but otherwise lovely. And Robin Soderling called. And I was, first of all, I'm shocked I was getting reception up there <laughs> because we were like literally like on the top of the Alps, like in this glacier area. Yeah. And I had was. to like hide in the corner of the train with my recorder, like pointed at my phone on speaker and like record Robin Soderling. And it cut out a few times, but he was like, I was like, can we do it later. He was like, no, we're doing it now. I was like, oh, okay. It's fine. And yeah, so that's my memory of that train is talking to Robin Soderling. And you have a photo of me actually like, I do. On top of like, they had like a stopping point on the train, I think, where we all got out on top of like the world glaciers and Robin called back and we continued the conversation and I'm up there. Yeah. Doing that. So there we go. That's Robin. That's my only contact personally with Robin Soderling. He was very nice. It was just a memorable setting. I hope he stays in tennis. It sounds like he will. Yeah. He's been doing entrepreneurial Um, things. He had exactly the tennis balls and uh, probably, I mean, I'm sure if he wants to, you know, future tournament director. And all that grand stuff, but it'd be fun to see him coaching. That I all the Swedes coach. That, so yeah, and they're good. I mean, you know, so that you've intrigued me by this idea of Burdick Soderling. Hmm. Make it happen. I mean, Burdick 
Well, I guess he's still with Valverde as of this point, as far as I know. Yeah, but, but yeah. Yeah, but why not? Do I it think for it's novelty. kind of weird. Bring in the super now. coach. You couldn't get Lendl. I think yeah. Soderling could be like very poor man's Lendl. For sure. And, and, and yeah, actually, you're you're very right on that. And side note, I think that it's still like kind of weird and awkward that Thomas Burdick works not just with Danny Valverde, but also Jez Green, who was Andy Murray's former uh, trainer. Yeah. I guess. Anyways, I'm just, it's like, dude, like, stop single white femaleing. It's the weirdest one. Like, why would you single white female the outside man? Like, <laughs> like single white female, the ones that win, not the guy that's on the outside looking in. That, that's just poor single white femaleing. Pretty much. So with that all done, are you ready, Corinne, to take a walk down memory lane? I've got my memory cap on. Oh, boy. Okay, so for those of you who are at your first time with us at Remember When, welcome. It's a sort of annual-ish feature we do, looking back at just little things more than big things that we remember from 2015, things that might have fallen through the crack. But the little things are what makes tennis what it is. It's it's not about the forest as much as it was about the nice trees, maybe especially to go sort of macro at first, Courtney, in, in 2015, I think. Is that fair? Most- yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fair. Cool. All right, so let's do it a little bit chronologically, if we can. Let's start with, I guess, Australia, which feels like so long ago. Like this is when if you're like, oh wow, the year flew by, but no, like the Australian Open 2015 was a long time ago. It was. So I'm going to say, do you remember when a bird pooped on Lynn Davenport when she was watching Madison Keys? I do, and and uh, Madison Keys's agent, uh, Max Eisenblad, cracked up and pulled out his phone and had to take a photo. And I remember, like, the cameras catching Lindsay, like, cracking up. Yeah. Like, laughing so hard. And people think it's good luck. And she beat uh, Patrick Vitova that match. That was that match. She did. And the funny thing about that is after that match, I was – the way that the Australian Open media area kind of works is you have the press room, you have the interview room that are kind of next to each other. But you also can – um, walk near uh, these screens that are um, all the players kind of look at for to watch matches or match call times and things yeah. like that. So if you stand there, everybody who's ever been in that area that's a journalist knows which area I'm talking about. It's the place you, to be. It's the Main place street, to be. You yeah. kind of stand there after matches and you can just grab coaches or agents or whatever. I remember standing there and I had no idea about the bird pooping thing at all. <laughs> and Renee Stubbs <laughs> walks by me and uh, she had been calling that match and she goes and I'm like hey Renee how's it going oh great yeah it was a great win from Madison right yeah she's like did you see a bird shadow Lindsay <laughs> and I'm like I'm sorry like in a very thick Aussie accent so it took me I was like I'm sorry what she's like yeah bird just shot right on her I was like in the in the match yeah and that was when I found out Lindsay go. Davenport got shot on by a by a pigeon. So they're not all as scatological. I remember ones. I hope they might be, but at least most they of might mine be. are. Right? No, my, mine's a little bit. Uh, mine's going to back up maybe a couple weeks there. Please do. Remember when Serena Williams needed an espresso? Yes. To beat the future 2015 U.S. Open champion. That was the most whimsical moment of 2015 by <laughs> a huge distance. I mean, the whimsy of ordering coffee on court. It was like a viral tennis moment. Um, at Hotman Cup, which I didn't realize when I so when I heard about it, I didn't I didn't realize I'm usually pretty good now at knowing like what's gonna blow up on the crossover side, but I didn't see that one coming. That was like a Sports Center must have been a really slow news time, I'm guessing, but like that was like second lead story on Sports Center. It was like Serena orders coffee. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. One more Australia one I just found. Do you remember when, this is less positive, when Sloane Stevens was in Hobart? Do you know how the sentence ends? Because I completely forgot this. When Sloane Stevens was in Hobart, no. And they had her do the thing with the knife thrower. Oh my gosh! That was yeah. horrifying. It was a promo for the tournament, and Sloane is there, like, standing up against this board with, like, her arms up in the air, and they're having knives thrown at her. And she obviously survived, but, like, why she would allow herself to do that and why the term she, be like, like yes, She, genuinely good. freaked out, too. I, ugh, that was, like, I watched that once, and I was like, never, ever again. I'd recommend not watching that unless you enjoy getting scared. Yeah. Um, final Remember When from Australia, at least from me. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember when Kim Sears basically won the entire season? Yeah, I had that one. Kim Sears is watching uh, Andy Murray play Thomas Burdick, um, the aforementioned both of those two, uh, in the semis? No, quarters? Mm -hmm. Quarters? Yeah. And uh, it's getting feisty out there. The two kind of, uh, they don't bump as they cross ends, but Thomas Burdick apparently says something. Uh, after taking the first set, Andy Murray takes great offense to it. It's a, a whole thing. And the camera cuts to Kim Sears. And she appears to say... Now, the transcription I've heard people do... I've heard the flash fuck one, yeah. but I can't remember the context it, it, of everything it, it's else. Like, it's, I think it's fucking have that you check flash fuck. Yes, I think that's right. There you go. I think so that's that right. That was it. Sorry. So that was it. And, like, it was out of allegedly, control. Allegedly. Allegedly. Like, the Brits were calling in professional lip readers to make sure they get I've this right. I've never been more jealous of their tennis budgets than at that moment. Seriously, it's incredible. Uh, so Andy Murray comes back. He beats Thomas Burdick, kind of puts Thomas Burdick in his place. Um, again, this is an example Burdick of Thomas Burdick. Burdick could have used Soderling, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, towing the line of being, a, you know, a chest out, puffed out villain and shirking at it. Um, and then Britain, everything goes viral. Uh, and splashed across the pages of, of Kim saying whatever. And then the next match, what does she do? She shows up in a parental advisory explicit lyrics t-shirt. That is amazing. I just love that she found that shirt. I know. If she just had that idea, like, okay, that's funny to have the idea. But like, to actually pull it off by getting that shirt in a foreign country that you're not familiar with, impressive. Impressive. And just also to know that you're dealing with the British press. Like... Most people just let it lie down because you know that they will just, you know, soak up everything. And, and to, like, take a stand and be, like, to take ownership of the story, wonderful. Wonderful indeed. I have one last one from Australia that's sort of more of a looking forward, looking, remember when, in retrospect. But do you remember there was a first-round match that was considered really tough in the draw between Caroline Wozniacki and Taylor Townsend? I do remember this. And I'm just thinking now, and the winner of that played oh, yeah. Azarenka Stevens, but looking, which was obviously like a, a cluster of four of death for sure in any drop, by any rights. But looking back on it now, there's supposed to be a both tw big 2015 for both Wozniacki and Taylor Townsend, and they both had just hugely disappointing years. Hugely. Yeah. Especially oh, Taylor, sure. Taylor's outside top 300 now. So. Yeah. Well, and uh, on a similar kind of... One match that still to this day stands out to me from Australia this year was Karolina Pliskova's first match of the season. Oh, against Azarenka. Which came against Azarenka yeah, in, in Brisbane. Brisbane and right. it was a grind. It was a three-plus hour. It was a really good match. Them. Yeah, it was a great match. They were sweating like buckets. 
um, Pushkova ends up winning it. Azarenka loses it. And I, it, it kind of, it, it's not as, you know, it wasn't like Pushkova went soaring up and, and Azarenka sucked the whole year. It's not that. But I think that that match does kind of isolate those two seasons, uh, those two players' seasons insofar as for Pushkova being able to come through in her first match and, and out-gut, out-compete, and, and to get that win against Azarenka showed that they're, you know, an achievement unlocked kind of situation. Like, this is a different Pushkova. Yeah. And then from Azarenka, again, like, one of those tight matches that she came up on the short end of. You know, it started back then. It continued throughout her season um, that she just wasn't quite there. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, uh, was surprising. It's Azarenka had a really uh, that's interesting thing about this season. I feel like more than most, a lot of players had very enigmatic seasons that are like kind of tough to grade. Azarenka is definitely one of them because she felt like a very relevant player. I mean, she played Serena tougher than anybody consistently. Uh, she made two slam quarters, I believe, at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And yet she only made a semifinal at one tournament, which is when she was runner up in Doha, I think, yep. to Safarova. And she didn't break top 20. And so by just those metrics, it sounds like a terrible year by her standards of being a multi-slam champ, former number one, at the, you know, who was at the peak of her career age-wise. Um, but in actuality, it felt better than that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird – it'll be very interesting 2016. She's definitely one of the most intriguing of 2016, I'd have to say. Again, yeah. as she was this year too. For sure. For sure. I mean, it, when you are the only player who can consistently – turn your matches against Serena Williams into compelling uh, competitions. Yeah. You are a player that needs to be constantly relevant. Like, you know what I mean? Like you, you need to be, we want you to be constantly putting yourself in that position to, to challenge, to, to create these compelling matches. Do you think Halep is in that category yet? Cause I'm close to saying she is on just the purely against Serena basis. They, with the exception of the weird compelling, but double ways lopsided Singapore thing. Miami and Cincinnati were both really good. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Maybe. Um, I think the problem is is that when Azarenka plays Serena, to me, it seems very clear that she believes she can win. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily at this point get that sense from Simona. And so because of that, I kind of always doubt that Halep is going to beat Serena, um, even if she does um, and has done it before. Whereas with Vika, I really do believe that, like, you know, she is, she has the best chance of anyone on tour every time that she steps on the court against Serena. I think that she truly believes. And so for some reason that makes, obviously, the, the rivalry she has with Serena a little bit more compelling to me than a Halep where it just kind of feels like Halep is just kind of like, well, I guess we'll just see. Like, you yeah. know, like that sort of situation. To skip ahead um, to one, do you remember the testy moment that, Serena and Azarenka had at the French Open. Of course. That was great. That was wonderful. That was a really and then, good And then uh, Vika going into press and going ham on the lack of Hawkeye at the French Open. Yes. And oh, that was a great press conference. That was, a, that was her. That was the highlight of Victoria Azarenka's year. I think she you're right. Did, that, was, that was the moment she slayed in 2015. She destroyed it. It was so good. She slayed again at Wimbledon after she lost. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She went off on uh, the grunting and stuff. And she, she, she is a much better player. I've said this to other reporters. Vika is so much better in press after losses. There's something about her that just sort of seems to, like, relax or something. When she's in tournament mode, she has this, like, guard up, and she's just not entirely 
you know, letting things flow or being honest. And there's some sort of reserve there. But once she's out of a tournament, once she decompresses a little bit, Impressi has become one of the most sort of compelling players. But it really is a huge difference post-loss. I heard the same thing about other players. I heard McEnroe was the same way when he was playing. He was always much better after losses than wins. And so I don't know what that says about Azarenka, but it's definitely something I've noticed for sure. I don't know if you picked up on that, but that's definitely something No, no, I no, have. for sure. I mean, in, in that way, she is the opposite of, you know, like a Serena. Sure. Right? Serena, who's great after wins, sometimes. generally speaking. Well, sometimes. Uh, but when when she is at her best, it's usually after wins, and uh, less so when it's after a loss. That's generally okay. generally for most players, that's true, though. Right? I, I, I'm thinking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, do you have any, uh, done with Australia, do you have any, remember ones from, like, before Indian Wells? I do. Okay, go for it. Do you remember when, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to decide whether to go punchline here or just be descriptive, because there's so many different angles to go with this. Okay. But do you remember when a hapless Romanian team went into Canada? Oh, God. And beat Canada in the first round of Fed Cup in a surprising tie on every level. That became like one of the weird zoom out from that. One of my remember ones was just going to be Jeannie Bouchard. And I was going to do it at the U S open because that was such a bizarre tournament for her in all ways, you know, but Jeannie Bouchard's 2015 was one to forget in the remember one sense. Um, but really after a totally normal Australia making, you know, playing well enough at Hopman beating Serena there made quarters of the Australian open and lost to Sharapova. After that, it just went downhill so fast for her in so many categories. It was baffling. One of the best on-court handshake photos of the year came from that Sharapova Bouchard mm-hmm. Australian Open match. Um, Do you think that just soured Jeannie on shaking hands forever? <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to ask her. Uh, I'm not going to speak for Miss Bouchard, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, we didn't say it though, but she did wind up declining a handshake from Dulguru at the oh, draw yes. ceremony of the Fed Cup uh, yeah, so in Quebec City. Getting back to yeah, getting back to that tie, Jeannie Bouchard uh, representing Canada um, in that tie, and and there was no Simona Halep uh, for Romania. It was Alexander Dulguru and Ale- Andrea Mitu. Yep. Um, who were the primarily the singles players? So on paper, you look at that and you say, well, you know, you fully expect. Canada to be able to win that tie and it was just an absolute disaster um for Eugenie Bouchard she lost both singles matches she lost both singles matches in really I mean shocking fashion um to Dolgaru who then famously celebrated that win by running over to the bench of Romanian coaches and doing a handshake fake out yeah that was pretty that was kind of amazing um and then losing to me too which Really? Yeah. It wasn't Begu. It wasn't Halep. Um, wasn't it wasn't Nicolescu. It wasn't Kirstea. It wasn't Kirstea. Andrea, me too. I mean, it, it was – and it was really the beginning of when you started to see for, for Bouchard um, an inability to close out sets, an inability to close out games, yeah. you know, like when she was in a, a leading position um, and just getting herself into trouble. And, and, and that was just a running theme throughout her matches in 2015. A little jump ahead, another French Open preview. <laughs> Remember when? Remember when Andrea Mitu played Alison Van Oyvank in the fourth round of the Grand Slam? Because that happened. I do not remember that ever <laughs> happening. <laughs> okay, I have one more from before 
the Indian Wells, and it was something that I was trying to find a stream of when I was on my layover in Dallas on the way to Indian Wells because I wanted to see this so badly I couldn't find a stream. And so it was later on that I had to watch Sam Query on Millionaire Matchmaker. That was this year? Yeah. That was this March. That was on the way to Indian Wells that aired. And I talked to him about it there, and he had a great time. He unlo- The show said, like, they kept going out, but apparently he never heard from the girl after the show ended, which is kind of sad, I guess. And then he said that he would be very, very happy to take time, or very, like, he would immediately decide to take time off tour if he, if he ever got picked to be the Bachelor, like, the guy. Which I'm not sure will happen, but it's good to have dreams, I guess, and priorities. I never saw that. You never saw his episode? No. Oh, it was weird. <laughs> I refuse because I I he was have, yeah. Go ahead. I can't watch thing. I can't. I don't like reality television. No, I, I don't either. But secondly, it, I have a very hard time watching somebody else do things that are embarrassing to themselves. Like, and not that that's necessarily what Sam did, but like my, my projection was, there's no way this ends well. Like, I just can't watch it. I mean, he kind of played to his strengths more than tennis does in some ways because he had his like very easygoing nature i think really made him really well suited for millionaire matchmaker i've never seen the show before people who watch the show more and like know the characters whatever can weigh in more first of all the woman who's like had was paired with him in the episode um was some like real housewife type person who was insane and so that made sam's heart look much more normal sam looked very grounded it was a good ambassador for tennis on that side. If like someone watched this episode, they'd be like, "Oh, tennis players look okay as a people. They seem not crazy." Um, but yeah, overall, it was something shocking. I really also did like the vines he came out with before before that. Oh, the horse, the horsing, the dancing horses. Yeah. Oof. It was it was a very concentrated, brief Sam Query PR blitz that I was fascinated by <laughs> and I would be intrigued to see more of it. So I hope he hope he does get on all the reality shows he wants and, and hope he does find love. Why not? All right. Indian Wells, you got stuff, I imagine? I I've got a lot of stuff. Um where do we begin? It was an eventful Indian Wells. I'm gonna start at almost kind of the middle. Um but do you remember being in the press room? when word got out that Serena was pulling out of Indian that Wells. That was my main injury? one. Yeah, that was the most remember when moment of Indian Wells. Ugh, not the, the, obviously her walking back on court and having Isha crying and that big build of that moment was obviously big and the ensuing Nicolescu match was crazy. But and people that actual match was actually really great. People probably don't remember that part. But when she pulled out, it was during the Yankovic Lasicki semi. I believe it was Lasicki, right? And World's, World's Slow started to go out. There was a report, I think, from somebody on ESPN, or someone mentioned it in the booth that she was going to be pulling out, and there hadn't been word to us yet, and walked in the room, and like everyone was kind of not confirming things, but not denying things in a way that you could tell an announcement was coming very quickly. And yeah, it was stunning. And it was like, is she trolling everybody by pulling out of a semifinal again to see what happens? Like like that like happened to Venus? It was, it was a very odd way for it to end. And the way that... Uh, Andrew Krasny handled it all on court. Oh. Was so masterful. He, I think that he was a very underrated MVP of that moment. Oh yeah. Um, he, Andrew Krasny, who's the on-court announcer, because I think that, you know, when I when I look back and in, in the moments that I pick as like remember when moments, or just even, just the moments that I think of as being like the most memorable moments of this year, 
there are, they, a lot of the big moments don't stand out to me simply because in a lot of ways they're predictable Yeah. Uh, to me. So if something's predictable, I kind of generally forget that it happened. But when something was unpredictable or left me in a state of, gen- of general consternation or stress or anxiety or whatever, that's going to stand out. And so for me in that moment, I just remember like running around that press room, not running around, trying to keep it on the down low because I think everybody was trying to break it. Um, kind of hush hush. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, kind of being like, I don't know what's going to happen in the next ten minutes. Like, okay, she's pulled out due to an injury. I have no doubts to the veracity of any of that. But I don't know how this crowd's going to react. I don't know how fans will react that aren't in the stadium at home. Like, there was a lot of just like, are people going to boo her? Oh my god! Like, what if people boo her? Like, you know, like there was just a. I was I was really stressed out in that moment. Yeah. And, um, and it was interesting because people – they didn't announce in the stadium or anything for quite – even after we found out, which I think was in like 2-2 in the third set of that previous semifinal. Or maybe even – oh, it was at, during the second – after the second set. I remember thinking there was like a break where they could have announced it if they had wanted to. They didn't announce it. I heard later that they like pushed a push notification through about it to people who had the Indian Wells app at like maybe like four all in the third set or something or like late enough that it wasn't like totally blindsiding. When she did walk out pretty soon after that match. But yeah, it was it – was, uh, definitely a memorable ending to that that whole thing and again props to andrew krasny who just made it like <laughs> you never heard the words like he was so evasive about it in the best ways like you never heard the word serena is pulling out and there will not be a match right exactly you know, it was, was just never like a sound it was just like we love serena yay serena and it just you know carpet bombed them with love so yeah he told them how to feel exactly you know he set the tone and and so that was that was pretty impressive. The other remember when moment I have comes from Indian Wells. Mm-hmm. Rafael Nadal. Rafa Nadal. Uh, this was uh, this was a this is an interesting start. To, the whole year for Rafa was pretty interesting and dramatical. I mean, from starting from I guess his, um, I guess the Smichek match in, in, in Australia, which is another remember when. Um, when he went five with Tim Smichek. Um and then he had his crazy shorts backwardness in Brazil when he was playing at like 3 a.m. And all those feelings just came flowing out of him at once. Losing to Fabio Fanini in Brazil also, yeah. FYI. Yeah, all those feelings ca- came out pretty pretty rapidly at that all-access hour. They did. Yeah, no, we had all-access hour. Well, it wasn't. It's not called all-access hour. It's a WTA term. ATP, it was just the pre-tournament press conference. They combined them for like the first time ever kind of combine them insofar as the ATP because normally WTA All Access Hours is not press conferences. Um, it's actually a player at a round table. And so it's pretty informal. There's no transcript. You know, you get to talk to the player. Uh, ATP pre-tournament press conferences are usually press conferences. But at Indian Wells, um, I believe at the request of the tournament, the top players did round tables. So it was a bit more informal and uh, followed kind of the WTA uh, yeah. uh, format. And it actually went off without a hitch. I mean, in terms of the players coming in and out, it, really it well never organized. got to a situation. Yeah, it was really well organized and well done because sometimes you get like the worst situation is if you get like, you know, both Roger and Maria or like, yeah, Roger and Maria are in the room at the same time. Then the reporters are like, who do I talk to? And if I get up right now, am I going to be really rude? Right. To- and, and then at the same time, on some third table, they bring in like Safarova and nobody talks to her potentially. Right. And that's not great. So, right. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It can get awkward. So they they lined it up pretty well, which is not easy to do. But Rafa, in that all-access hour, 
was just letting loose on Davis Cup yep. and how the format of Davis Cup is broken and time violation. And about how he basically called out like the likes of like a Nick Kyrgios yeah. uh, when he was talking about time violations because he was like, you know, what example do we want to give to the kids? You know, somebody goes and they breaks their record or they hit, they say some bad words and we don't do anything. But I take an extra five seconds and I'm like some like basically a criminal. Like, what do you you know, what's the message that we're sending? I mean, he made a, a somewhat valid, if not flawed argument. It was it was peak diva Rafa. Which yeah. is something we talked about on the show before. Rafa, for all of his humility and all of his thinking, he's an, expressing that he's an underdog in pretty much every match he plays, or something along those lines. He can be incredibly assertive, borderline entitled, I guess, or just I, I'm not sure what the right word is for it. When it comes to thinking that his way is sort of the way to go, and this was him being that. And it, but he was so articulate and captivating and great, and I loved every second of it. As a reporter, you want a player to you know, tell us how you really feel. And he did exactly, exactly that for like, it went on for like 15 minutes of like nonstop, just like go, go, go. And he was somebody who responded really well to the round table. I'd be curious to see him do more of it. I remember Federer was in a really crabby mood that day. I don't know if oh, he just he had so a, pissy. He just had like a long flight or something. And he was, yeah, cause he played the Madison square garden. Right. Exhibition. Right. So he'd been, he'd been playing that and he just, yeah, he was in a, it didn't work for him at all. Um, but for Rafa, it was great. So you never know having not having been with women a lot in the, in the roundtable formats for WTA, never any of the guys. Uh, I'd be, I would love to do it more with it all because it was a great, great format for him. And I think he was somebody who appreciated not being on a podium, whereas Federer probably likes the podium a bit. Roger likes to, you know, look down amongst his <laughs> his uh, humble servants. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I think that format would work well for Andy too. I, I wasn't in there for Andy. Andy, um, it was a lot. From there, they were like. Because it was like big four plus Stan and then all eight top WTA. There was just a lot that day. And, and then plus on top because of that, you're doing one-on-ones as well. I think it was all so – like, yeah. yeah. I was – I remember I think I was talking to somebody when Andy was in the room or something. I don't know, but I, I, I didn't I, see – I remember Andy's a little bit. I remember talking to Stan. But yeah, anyway, it was, it, was, it was good. I hope they do it again that way this year. It was fun. Um, yeah, but overall – yeah, Rafa, that was something. I'm sure we talked about it at length at that time on the show, I remember. So if you want to go back and listen to whatever March episode that was, we might have some audio from that, from it too in the episode. Anything else from Indian Wells? Again, I mentioned it, I think, in the last episode or the episode before. Simona Halep not being able to lift the Indian Wells trophy <laughs> yes, still remains a really before. funny <laughs> moment to me. I love it. That is it perfect makes, it remember just, when, yeah. It makes me happy. It's great. It's pretty good. Miami, next. One thing I wanted to mention in Miami was that Juan Martin Del Potro played there this year? I do not remember that. Yes, he did. He played, he won his first match, and then I think he played Dimitrov in the second round. And it was just ugly, and he just didn't have it, and he was, he couldn't really hit a backhand at all, and was running around it. He played other events too, I think, but he definitely played Miami, and it was tough to watch, and he pretty much shut it down after that. And it was sad, and I really hope that Del Potro comes back at full blast at some point. Because Miami was rough. I'm glad you don't remember. I'm glad you blocked that out, Courtney, because you should. It it sounds like something that I would block out, yeah. uh, especially as much as I adore um, and love Juan Martín del Potro. I, I try to, I try to remember the good times, yeah. and erase the bad times. That's that's kind of how I roll. Uh, but yeah, that was that was not great, for sure. My other my 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 remember when from Miami, uh, 
Remember when Daria Gavrilova beat Maria Sharapova and it was really weird and kind of like, what? Do you remember that amazing, like, snarl Maria had in that match? <gasps> Love. <laughs> Love so much. <laughs> that was one of the best gifts. That gift, I think, was like really, I think it planted a seed that, that sprouted into WTA reactions a few months later. I think that GIF, I know there was a video that was actually probably more the genesis of it directly, but that moment was like the most perfect, just like reaction face of rage. Yeah, that was surprising. Maria was, uh, had a good Indian Wells, I guess, made quarters, I think. No, made fourth round. Maybe not that great, but she beat Azarenka. So it was unexpected loss, but she was hurt then. And yeah, Maria's year again, like so many players this year, up and down for sure. Very much so. And the Gavrilova Very loss was so. definitely a down, but Gavrilova went on to have a really good year. It was really it was a really that was, was the a great year. For it, yeah, and match. it was it was, and you know it was a it was she was so jacked, just jacked for that match, and uh, you know super hyper and in her typical Daria Gavrilova way, and uh, you know when you see kind of like the that sort of energy, that sort of Russian energy, uh, pit against the calm, seething Maria Sharapova Russian energy, it was it was quite a memorable moment. Um, also an, an explosive remember when moment, uh, not explosive, but just kind of nuts. I don't know if you remember this. Okay. Was a second round match, I believe, between Thomas Bellucci. Yes, and Cuevas. And Cuevas. That was, a, Cuevas. That, was a, that was a sleeper hit match of the year, like Dark Horse. For sure. That, that match was, was nuts. That match was pure like Davis Cup. It was out on Stadium 2, which if you've ever been to Miami, is like really far away from the action. It's just isolated thing it was late at night there's so many latin fans there a lot of latin players get put on night matches in general it's even on stadium like juan monica would headline occasionally it would feel normal yeah that was an awesome awesome atmosphere i remember watching that in on tennis tv on my phone while in the cell waiting lot of, a, of an airport picking up somebody i forget who but i remember that match yeah and it was just um it was testy between the two of them yep. uh, words were exchanged fans were Met- like kind of ready to fans were, looking a little yeah bit. exactly fans were we're getting a little feisty. There were some suspicious medical timeouts that were called. Uh, it was just one of those matches where you're like, ah. Who won? I, I don't remember who won. Is it Bellucci? Cuevas. Okay. Let's go with that. Two six six two seven five. Yeah. That was a great match. Oh, wait. No, Bellucci. Okay. Sorry. See, it doesn't matter. It was the journey, not the, not yeah. the destination <laughs> who won Cuevas Bellucci. We never remember who won Cuevas Bellucci, but remember that it was it was very cool. Speaking of of players uh, in Miami, <laughs> do you remember who was the women's runner up there? Off the top of your head, your short, your slow reply. I'm going to take as a no. So it was Carla Suarez Navarro, oh, and sorry, Carla. Carla. Remember when Carla was like number three in the race early on this year? Yes, because that happened. Carla had this amazing start to the year. Was like three, made another semi, uh, another big final in Rome a few months later, and then didn't, and then just completely tail dived in the fall and missed out on Singapore. It's not, yeah. So that was a, just one of the steepest falls from a race. I don't think anybody's ever been like top four in the race through Rome and not made it. But anyway, that was Carla. And it was it was weird to watch. Cool because she's a very pretty player to watch. But there were some bad does like the Serena match the final was awful it was one of the worst finals of any big tournament ever it was real bad it was real real bad <laughs> there was no yeah. there was no sugarcoating that one what you got from the clay hey remember episode 100 of NCR oh self-referential remember when yes I do 
Yeah. That was fun. That was in Charleston. That was in Charleston, but it was compiled over the course of, of a couple of tournaments at Indian Wells in Charleston mm-hmm. because it involved Ernest Golbis, uh, Yelena Yankovic, and Andrea Petkovic. And a couple of things regarding that episode that totally just stand out in my mind, and I may have mentioned it on episode 100. If you're a new NCR listener, you should go back and listen to it. It is our magnum opus. Kind of seminal. It really is. It gives you a sense as to what to expect on, on this podcast. But I remember in both the instances with respect to Ernest Golbis and Andrea Petkovic. Yes. Both players agreeing to do the interview in less than ideal circumstances when they would have had every right to blow us off and say, I don't want to talk to you guys. The fact that both of them uh, went out of their way, honestly, to, to, to sit down with us for a protracted amount of time um, and talk about a whole host of things that just, that just validated episode 100 to me on every level. And then to just, you know, cherry on top of a cupcake of awesomeness, Yelena Yankovic singing I'm just JJ from the block remains one of my favorite NCR moments of all time. That was, it was pretty dang phenomenal. It's pretty great. Yeah, like you said, Golbis was had a playing as you might remember when he had a terrible start to the year. Uh, really, really bad. Couldn't win a match pretty much. And was losing in, after losing in doubles after a bad loss in singles, he came uh, ATP allowed him to sort of talk and we started the interview with Golbis being like, eh, if you like if you're not into it like you can leave and he was like, Yeah, I might just do that. And he, he hung with it and it was it was good. And uh Pekovic had lost earlier that day and was playing doubles later and it was a rain delay and she like came and found us and was like, Hey, let's do this now. And that was pretty pretty dang cool. It's pretty it, and, I, and, I, so, I, and I, so unusual. It would that's the thing. Like, I can't emphasize that enough. I mean in our jobs, we have been as reporters pretty much trained in tennis to never expect anything when a player loses. We're when a chore player... for them in the best of circumstances. Exactly. You know, if they win, okay, maybe communications will push for the interview, whatever. But if they lose and you ask to talk to them, yes, you have the right to talk to them. And yes, you even in certain certain circumstances have a right to that interview. But everyone will be looking at you and rolling their eyes. Well, yeah, because I, uh, people might not know this. Tennis comms people, both ATP and WTA, really try to push, which is confusing to newcomers to the sport because it doesn't work this way in other sports at all, as far as I know, any sport that I'm aware of. Um, really try to push any interview, especially like features you do, to be that are post-match, to be win only. Well, let, let's see what let's see if they win. So you have like a 50-50 shot, theoretically, of having your story get flushed down the toilet. So I've done. I've had matches where I've been ready to talk to either person who wins. Like I'll talk to the winner of this match, because I know someone will win it. And I'll just be ready for either, and it's something that's flexible enough. Um, yeah, that's and, she, that and was, again, that was, it's one of those situations where, uh, you know, you have a story that you're working on. You need to talk to a certain player. They lose in the opening round, and that week that you've spent at the tournament trying to get that player to talk to you is lost. It, it, you know, like you're just kind of like, well, I guess I'm not getting that interview, you know. So yeah, so so for for Ernie and 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 Petco to do that was 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 really cool, especially with Golbus, just because he's so fickle sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, Petco knows us. You know, she she was down to do it, and she was really excited to do it. It's her third NCR appearance, yeah. Exactly. She is our she has our NCR mascot on every level, but uh, but for Golbus to do it and to be as as thoughtful as he was 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 really cool. So, yeah, it was neat. Uh. To go to things that were less sort of gracious and wonderful. Remember when Andy Murray went to Munich and told Lucas Berg, Lucas Russell, that no one likes you? 
the Murray clan had some testy moments with the checks. They year. were tr- they were dropping truth bombs this year. They really were the Andy Murray clan. The other thing, the other brief thing I will mention from Murray in Munich, it was his first clay title. But they, remember, they also put up a privacy privacy screen for him on court to, to put on the later version. I love that he was like they were prepared for it. It's like, yeah, we're gonna make you take off your pants, but don't worry, we have provisions for this. It was great. Uh, he he kind of weirdly pulled off the later hosen. I don't know. He didn't look as weird as I thought he'd look, is what I'm saying. They were tight. <laughs> Andy Murray, his shorts generally kind of are. He, he's got a... Okay. He's All got right. a... Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no. I mean his butt, dude. Okay, sure, sure. Sure. Oh, you're terrible. Um, um, anything from, anything from uh, Madrid? I don't have anything that I can think of. I very rarely have anything from Madrid. I mean, obviously, that's where Petra beat Serena. Yeah. And Serena, her first loss of the year. There was another great Serena-Vika match there. Mm-hmm. Vika had three match points. Yeah. Couldn't close. Um, Not to, The match just went really late, and people were getting pissy about that. I remember that from Madrid. Um, but overall, not the most, not the most like iconic. And, and curious beat Federer. That happened in Madrid. Oh yeah. Um, that's remember Wenish, I guess. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to Kyrgios more later, I imagine. But um, my main one, my next one is from Rome, the one that I'm eager for. Do you remember when Novak Djokovic almost took his eye out with a champagne cork? Oh my gosh. That was, that was like could have changed the whole season. Yeah. Novak Djokovic, idiotically, I might say opened a bottle of champagne with the cork pointing at his face and the cork went flying, grazed his nose, wound up blooding up his nose and then hit like his orbital bone above his eye. And he was like, just one Monte Carlo, just one Rome was going into the French as a favorite. Big things were happening. And he almost ended it all with the champagne cork. It's amazing to think what would have happened. That would have been like what the craziest story in tennis like? almost ever that it happened yeah. it came so close to it he had like a legit cut on his nose and press yeah, that yeah. champagne cork it was gray <sighs> that was yeah so yeah i don't remember a ton from madrid rome speaking of gavrilova made semis in rome i know that was that weird. was one of the craziest things yeah i remember there was a romanian fan who had a flag that had fighter girl written on it that was cool. oh my gosh can we not? Did we not talk about Romanian fla- Romanian fan in Dubai? No, we did not. But you can certainly do that. Oh, what a blessing she was. Explain for those who don't remember. So, for those of you who don't know, Simona Halep goes and plays Dubai. She does pretty well, but the matches were pretty dramatic. A young woman had flown from Romania to Dubai to cheer on Simona Halep with a fervency you rarely see in the sport of tennis. There's and a desperation she, to it. Yeah, that she lived and died. Yeah. With every point. And it was incredible. And Dubai was rolling along, as it does, in pretty straightforward fashion. Nothing too dramatic was happening. The minute that the cameraman discovered this woman. Game changer. She became the reason why you tuned in. You just wanted to know if she was going to survive. <laughs> the Tennis Island had a really good post about her. If you need a getting to know. Yes, super exactly. Fan. The Tennis Island. Yeah. Look up the Tennis Island super, Romanian super fan post from Dubai. It's great. And uh, and it was just wonderful. And it, it's just, I don't know. There are those moments that make you kind of snap out of your tennis cynicism. 
that can kind of creep in having been around the sport for so long. And that was one of those moments of just like, she just has a pure joy and a pure love. And I would like to help do what I can for all these players and this sport to cultivate that with fans who react to missed drop shots as though they've been stabbed in the gut. That's that's what we need. That's what we need. French Open, ready for that? Oh, so many memories. Okay, early round memory. A memory of something that didn't happen. Do you remember when Venus Williams lost to Sloan Stevens first round and then just disappeared? I do remember that. I remember that happening. Venus Williams uh, was a rare player who like, consciously decided to take the fine to skip press, which like never happens in tennis. And never happens in tennis. And I think that we remarked at the time. Like it should happen. It could happen so much sh- more. It kind of should happen a ton in tennis. I wouldn't like, say should. I say I would say could. Should, but could. No. I'm could. just saying. I mean, they make good enough money. Yeah. If you don't want to talk to the press, just don't talk to the press. Yeah, it was a loss. I'm sure she was not excited about losing to Sloane Stevens. And she just over it. And so, yeah. That's fine. That she was. That she was. But speaking of Sloane Stevens, remember when she reminded the world that there was a block button on Twitter? That was Indy Wells. Yes, that was that was a great gif. Again, tremendous gif. I remember I remember gifs more than more than real <laughs> life at this point. Block, 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 block. Yeah. <laughs> All of that was good, and that was a rare moment of her. I was there was an exchange with me um, at Indy Wells when that came up, talking about abuse she gets from fans, particularly Serena Williams fans on Twitter, which is a well-established phenomenon. And she was like, it was something where she clicked out of her sort of sleepwalking that she doesn't press often now or or robot mode and she had something to say about that she had a lot of blocks to give about that topic (laughs) i see what you did there that was very humorous ben thank you so my random aside my niece uh, is here she's almost two years old and she blocking people on twitter yet she's not blocking people on twitter but she has this habit of like if somebody makes a joke she'll say that's funny or you're funny and Instead of laughing or with laughing? With a little bit of laughing, like like a bit of a giggle. Okay, good. And I keep turning to my sister and being like, oh my God, is she going to be that girl? <laughs> you know, like, you're funny. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> like that Broad City scene. Exactly. In Broad City. Exactly. And I always think of you. I'm like, oh, not because you do it, but because of that scene in Broad City. Thank you. But yeah. Broad City is coming soon. It is. Remember, Remember when, in Indian Wells? Remember when you introduced me to it in Melbourne? I introduced Ben to Broad City in Melbourne, and then we watched the season finale of the second season in Indian Wells. It was great. And I specifically remember having a, a like glass of whiskey in my hand and being so happy. We like rushed home uh, and downloaded it on our super slow Wi-Fi. Yeah. And we got it to work. It was pretty great. It was um, pretty great. Things that were not great. Do you remember the horror, like kind of legit horror, when that enormous thing fell off the scoreboard? At the front Goodness open? gracious. That was, like, one of the scarier moments. That was when I thought, like, I might have to, like, switch into, like, more, like, news reporter mode and start reporting on, like, casualties in the stands. And blood. There was It looked so bad at first. Yeah. It, for those of you who don't remember, it was during the Sangha Nishikori quarterfinal in Chatrier. And it was a very windy day. Very, very windy day. And a piece, a, a, a metal plank made out of aluminum, we later learned, we didn't know what it was at first. But it had With like, like bird wire. spikes on it. It was, yeah, it was like nail looking things. There's a lot of pigeons in Paris. Um, to keep them off the scoreboard for some reason, it came loose and went crashing down from the top of not a very tall stadium at all. 
uh, but it went crashing down from the, the top part of the stadium, hit like a railing or something, and then landed in the, t- in the upper part of the lower bowl. And on fans, this this plank happened, and uh, people were first thing we saw was a lot of blood on the ground and stuff, and then. Uh, I think three fans were injured. One was taken to a hospital, like a cut on his arm, but it wasn't all that bad. One kid who got hit um, was like all upset. They got he wanted to go back in and see Sangha. Was apparently like throwing a fit. Like I got to see Sangha. I'm here to see Sangha. Like get me back in there, which is like adorably tennis Spanish and a little deranged. And yeah, it was great. And not great. Sorry, that's a completely wrong. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I think you might need to read. I was getting that line. <laughs> kid. It was. <laughs> I'll leave that in there. But it was horrifying and like a weird weird moment that could have been so much worse could have been so much worse there were ambulances pulling up everywhere around the grounds yeah it was a mess huge mess word up yeah i mean remember when at the french open a ton of high profile matches on the men's side turned out to be complete and utter duds and a bunch of matches that looked like they were going to be boring as hell on the women's side ended up being incredibly compelling Yes, that's pretty much what happened. That's pretty much a description of what happened on the men's side. So at the French Open this year, we we got to see Novak Rafa, uh, and that was a dud. Stunk. Like, Novak Rafa was the most anticipated match of the season. It was a big deal when they landed the same quarter because yeah. that had been the whole talk. Rafa's going to be number five. It could happen, but it was a one-in-four shot, and usually that kind of thing doesn't actually pan out, but it actually did which was, I thought, really satisfying to have that narrative actually mean something because it had been a big concern. Would they bump him up? Would he be able to win his way up to number four by, like, winning Rome or something? Um, and, yeah, and they played, and it was a rout. It was an absolute rout. It was, it was the, a rout. It was one of the most lopsided matches of on Chatria, like, all tournament, arguably. Yeah, it was. It was, there was no tension in that match whatsoever uh, in terms of dramatic tension uh, once play actually began. Yeah. But it was so hyped, you know, and everybody was looking forward to it. Um, there was Stan Federer. Yeah, that was also hyped, and that was another terrible. Yeah, terrible. Stan beat him so hard. It was, it was, it was, yeah, <laughs> like just a tough watch uh-huh. in every way, shape, and form. Uh, and then you had Novak Andy, which wasn't a dud in any way, shape, or form. No. Uh, it was cray. It was crazy, and I definitely knew that Novak was going to win. I just there was no way that no, that Andy was going to win that match, but he made it very compelling. And it was played over the course of two days um, with a one-set one shootout, right? I called for darkness when it started raining a little bit um, at the end of the fourth. And I, it was debatable. I remember being there, like, in the stands, out in the bowl for it, and being like, they could keep playing. That was one – I guess they didn't want to push it and have a clean start. But that – arguably, that decision could have been a big part of why Stan won the French Open. It's that Novak didn't get a day, a full day of rest yeah. before the finals. So that was a big decision. And obviously, no, Djokovic came out in pure – like switch from stun to kill mode uh, in that fifth set and bageled him right yeah yeah and so that was that was ugly but uh yeah that was that was a big match but you're right like some of the lesser matches like obviously the one that they keep bringing up in serena's when talking about serena's year is serena bachinski yep which was a semi that on paper was going to be i mean bachinski's making the semis is a big remember when i think because she beat kvitova and beat i guess van oitvank in the in the quarters uh Allison Mono, I think, gets her second mention on this podcast, which I'm very happy about. Um, but Baczynski was a great story. I mean, she was somebody who had been, like, a very, very niche, like, story in tennis in 2014. And for her to become a very relevant player, up a set and 3-2, up a break? I can't remember. I don't think it was a break, but up a set I don't think it was a break, yeah. In the second set of the semifinal against 
against uh, Serena with Safarova awaiting in the in the final. I mean, Bachinsky could have won the French Open. Coulda. Coulda. Very coulda. Very coulda. Yeah. So that was that was nuts. Any other m- matches that stick out to you in terms of that? Oh, I remember when uh, Skiavoni Kuznetsova they had of their course. redo in, in Paris this year, which was epic and wonderfully them. Onto the grass, Courtney. One thing I remember about the grass to go to right to Wimbledon, if you don't have anything before that, or we can just dance around a little bit, is you remember the Wimbledon fire? <laughs> I didn't until just now, yeah. <laughs> Wimbledon fire, I... yeah. Wimbledon caught fire, some some underground or some part of center court that was not like in the seating bowl, had some electrical fire and some sort of industrial fire, and they kept kicking us out of the press room and kept evacuating us, and it was annoying because we had work to do. And we had snuck. I, I remember having snuck back in. Yeah, me too. Because somebody had said, "Oh yeah, it's fine." So we're like, "Okay." So we came back in, and then like the cops came back through, and they're like, "What are you doing here?" And we're like, "Well, somebody told me you can go in." Oh, it was a whole thing. I realized we're. A- I realized we're not their biggest concern when there's a fire, but like we were so far away from the fire, we were in no danger. We were not in danger. We were fine. Um, and I Venus Williams remember- was about to come to press when the fire happened. It made me think that she set the fire to get out of press. Because she had a pattern of that of that at that point, but that was never proven. A pattern of arson? <laughs> yeah, a pattern of finding ways to get out of press conferences, which was escalating to arson at an alarming rate. <laughs> <laughs> but no. Um, remember when Roger Federer served completely lights out against to Andy. Be Andy Murray? That was another beat in the that, Wimbledon semifinal. That was one of that the, was shocking. That was one of the best performances of the year, if not the best. Yeah. One. But I guess Novak against Rafa was really good, but Roger against Andy, that was maybe the best match I've ever seen Roger play. Yep. And it came in 2015. And I talked to a lot of reporters that day and the next day. They were saying the same thing. Yeah, who have, you know, followed Roger for more time, more years than I have and seen more matches of his than I have. And almost, I mean, every single one of them was like, that's the best I've ever seen him play. Yeah. It's nuts. It was indeed nuts. And then he didn't win a slam this year. Like, Roger's two, he's made... Three slam semi, three slam finals, in the past two years, and like lost to Djokovic in all of them, obviously. But gosh, he's had he's for someone for someone who's probably thinking only about mostly about slams at this point. Gosh, she's I feel bad that he for bad on some level he hasn't gotten one because he's been playing so well at a lot of times that weren't the moment. Sorry, Raj. Sorry, Raji. One other thing, which I guess it happened, I guess in the clay season, it ended. Do you remember when Martina Navratilova was coaching Agnieszka Radwanska? Oh, yeah. That happened it, this I mean, that year. Was, that was brief. That was brief and a lot of hype and no result. It was that was that was I don't know with with Edberg leaving Federer and that partnership ending and Davenport leaving Keys or not working with Keys anyway. Um, do you think the Super Coach era could be ending? No, I don't think so. I think that in in the grand scheme of things, the Super Coach has proven to be a thing. Yeah. I think it's proven to be successful. I mean, if you trace it back to Lendl and Murray, and uh, even if you count, you know, Magnus Norman and Stan Vavrinka, I mean, Nishikori Chang has been pretty good. Yeah, Nishikori Chang has been pretty good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the Edberg Federer pairing. I, I still find uh, Federer Lubicic to be an odd decision. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think that, I think that. The issue will always be the travel. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when it comes to coaches, you, you need somebody who's long-term. 
and you need somebody who's committed to you for more than one year, two years, or more than 10 tournaments a year or 12 tournaments of a year. You, you need somebody who's in there. Yeah. The most successful tournament, the successful pairings, excuse me, have been, you know, Moresmo Murray is a good example. That's been a successful partnership. He needs her, though, to be there. Yeah. Consistently. Um, she hasn't and, always been. And she hasn't always been. And mm. his results when she is there far exceed the results when she is not. Yeah. You know, it, things did not work well with Bjorkman. So that's always going to be an issue is, is you know, with Lindsay Davenport and Madison Keys. Lindsay has so many responsibilities plus a, a, a large family. Um, you know, she can't be in there all the time. Martina Navratilova has a tremendous amount of responsibilities across the globe all the time, speaking engagements, things like that. She's not capable of being there 100% of the time. So Edberg, I understand, you know, was kind of sick and tired of the traveling thing. And, you know, Becker's not there with uh, with Novak all the time. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't think I don't think they're all going to disappear. But I think I think we might have reached a bit of the peak of it. This like 2015 might have been like when it topped out. I think it'll still be a thing, but I don't think it'll be like the thing everybody's doing all the time. Well, you're also just running out of super coaches. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. That is also <laughs> true. There's still room for more women to do it. I mean, there's no yeah. reason why people like uh, like a Naruto couldn't get another look with somebody else, or you know, uh, Steffi Graf couldn't get hired. It's, I don't, I don't think she's going to do it. But you know, or yes, Stella, I mean, or there's, there's more names left in the women's theoretically, side. Yeah. but the actual practical. Right. application of it it's it's not feasible yeah. for so many and this isn't a gendered thing it's not like only the women or the men but for just you know you're in retirement yeah you're a multimillionaire. you're good stuffy does not need this no why why go back on tour for you know 10 11 months of a season it, you know it makes no sense yeah no for sure um okay let's just get right to this one courtney where were you during Vavrinka Curios. That was, was that was in, that was our first emergency episode of the year. That's crazy. Um I was in Toronto for the Rogers Cup for the ladies and I was actually in a car with uh, a driver who I became quite good friends with who I adore, um Sonia, who's great. And uh, she her husband is Romanian. Mm. And she is Italian. So she was telling me a lot of stories about like, you know, driving Flavia and you know, a Ronnie and they were totally innocuous. They're just, just kind of saying, no, they're very nice and very thoughtful. And she drove Pekovic and it was, uh, yeah, Andrea was incredibly kind to her. And so we were just kind of bonding. And as we're doing that, I'm trying to get on my phone, my work phone, which is a WTA phone mm. has, it roams, it's on T-Mobile. So it can roam, uh, in other countries. And I remember sitting there in the passenger seat trying to get my phone to pick up Twitter messages because it wasn't doing it. And it was because of something about, I don't know. I don't know why it was happening this way, but it was struggling. I remember trying to have the conversation with Sonia while also seeing flashes (laughs) via Twitter of what the heck was going on in Montreal and being like, what? And I may have at one point been like, have you heard about what it was, what's going on in Montreal right now? It's nuts. And so then immediately, like, I got out and I ran back to my room, fired up my computer, and was like, holy crikey. And then I watched it from there. Yeah. So for those of you who don't remember, which is probably nobody, I hope, I think, like, this, knowing what happened there, it's kind of a prereq for listening to NCR on some level. That's true. But, uh, yeah, Stan, uh, Stan Rinko was playing Nick Kyrgios, and Kyrgios 
made an under his breath but very audible remark uh, by the court microphones about uh, <laughs> saying to and about Vavrinka saying uh, Kokonakis banged your girlfriend sorry to tell you that mate and it just set off the talk about like Soderling pulling shorts this was much more nuclear than that and much more below the belt even though I guess it all's but it's below his belt. But and yet, yeah. Curios is still forgiven to a far more great, far greater degree. It, I don't agree so with that. Like, I don't think so. I don't think people forgave Curios right away. Fans totally like the, people are over it. I I'm think, sorry. I think, people, I think, I think a lot of people still hold that against him. I don't think. I think it's gonna be very interesting to see how he's received in Australia this year. I don't know. I, I think we'll he's see. fine. I, I I would imagine he's probably fine, but I don't think everybody. I don't think that it's. I don't think people have moved on totally. I don't buy that. Yeah, maybe we'll see. Speaking of, if you have anything else from Canada, we can go to the aftershock of that, which happened in Cincinnati. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, fireworks go off. <laughs> when Serena uh, loses. When Serena loses and Drake is in the audience. Things are kind of weird, I think. That was a good one. <laughs> so Belinda Bencic uh, beating Serena Williams in Toronto with Drake in the audience. For some reason, fireworks go off. I never really understood why that happened. An incredible run by Belinda Bencic in Toronto. She beat something like four or five consecutive uh, Grand Slam finalists or uh, champions uh, in the course of her run to the title there. Simona Halep, Serena Williams, Caroline Wozniacki, Samina Lisicki, and I want to say one more that's in there as well. Maybe Sam Stozer. Bouchard, she beat. Did she beat Bouchard? Yeah, she beat Bouchard. Yeah, she beat Bouchard. Yeah, but so Bouchard as well. So incredible performance. But yeah, she wins and fireworks went off. And I don't know why, because that was awkward. <laughs> that is a little awkward. Do, do you buy I, a lot? Of, some people are blaming Drake when Serena lost at the U.S. Open and saying he was like bad luck for various sports teams and things over time. Do you think there's a Drake curse? Do you, do you humor that at all? No, I do not. Nor do I. I just thought I should mention that it's there. Remember when people tried to blame Drake for Serena losing matches? That that did happen. Um, that did happen. Yeah. Um, but the thing that the, sh- the fallout from Curios uh, Vavrinka was the Kokonakis Harrison thing that happened in Cincinnati. <laughs> That's right. Which was the biggest quality story of the year, I think I can say. Um, <laughs> and it was just the the most overflow of testosterone ridiculousness. Um, I don't think we, we didn't talk about it that much on this show because it was the week we were doing our live show. So we did a little bit of a different show during that time. But it was, I was there. It was nuts. And yeah, Australia was eating up the Curio story at that point. So like this was a weird thing that could be tacked onto it. And it definitely was fueled by the Curio thing. Like Harrison like made that clear that he was taking this out on Kokonakis because of what Curios did. And I don't, it was. And just by way of background, in yeah. case people missed that episode, because it was, yeah, it was a big deal, but it was also kind of an inside tennis story. Oh, yeah, that, that was much smaller. Extent. Yeah. So you want to run down what happened in that match? Uh, you were there. Okay. Maybe I will, you're the one that I, should. <laughs> better point. Um, sure. So basically, uh, there have been a bunch of overrules. Mohamed Layani was in the chair. And Harrison and Kokonakis were playing in qualies. In, in qualies in Cincinnati in the first round, late at night. There had been a lengthy Monica Nicolescu qualies match on before them. <laughs> they took like three hours Bless and 40 you, minutes. Monica. And so she pushed this match from like what would have been a five o'clock start to like an 8 p.m. start. Um, it was, I, I forget who Nicolescu was playing, but it was a chore, that match. It was amazing. It was great. It was like three, it was so long. They come on, there are a bunch of overrules. There's no Hawkeye in, in, in qualifying. And Leoni, with his typical way of being so shouty and loud, like really, the overrules like, irked them more than they probably would have otherwise they just sort of like got their blood boiling a bit 
And uh, eventually they started making sarcastic remarks at each other for complaining. And then it escalated into them needing to be separated at the, at the net um, after the first set ended or late in the first set, at least. And Leona came jumping out of the chair and uh, Kiri and, and Harrison was talking about like, Oh, your whole crew is just so cool, man. And talking about his tattoos and piercings <laughs> and stuff. And it was, it was all one. And then so fine, it was so, it was so like, testosterone and ridiculous and, and awesome. And Harrison talked about it when he was on in the, in the challenger episode. So if you, if you, we did, you did hear about it a little bit in that episode, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was fun. And uh, the most frustrating thing about that match by far, and maybe my whole dumbly, my most frustrating reporter moment of the whole year, which means I had a pretty decent year. I'm going to, I know what the other answer to that question is, but um, I was filming the handshake and the post-match kerfuffle, I, I like jumped down onto the court essentially, or, like stepped over into the photo pit on Stadium Three to get really close for it. And my camera, met my my iPhone ran out of memory right before Harrison said, um, "Vavrinka should have decked Kyrios, and I should deck this kid." Like five seconds before, my phone ran out of memory, and it would have been a tremendous YouTube sensation moment. Have you learned a lesson from that moment? Ben? Yes, I did actually. I I put all my photos on the cloud, and now I have it like eight mega, uh, gigabytes free on my phone, just in case things come to blows again. That's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, other Cincinnati thing, which had much less hype. Sorry, much more hype, but much much less sizzle. Uh, Coco Poots was in Cincinnati. Oh yeah. That did happen there. That did happen there. That was, re- and they played again. I want to say later in the year, or no? I'm making that up. Uh, no. Anyway, Poots, who had delivered very well in a previously hyped match in uh, Indian Wells against Rodianova, another remember one, um, another Qualies remember one actually. Coco Poots was highly hyped and didn't amount to much. So I remember that being disappointing, but still kind of fun. I mean, were there hyped matches that happened this year that actually lived up to the hype? Uh. In terms of, like, popcorn hype or, like, actually good. I mean, like, some matches were good. Like, the Wimbledon and U.S. Open men's finals were both pretty good. With the Federer, Djokovic, Federer. They weren't yeah, amazing, yeah, yeah, but they yeah, weren't they bad. Were. Sure. Vavrinka Djokovic bad. was good. Um, Serena Maria at the Aussie was good. That was good. And probably not hyped, but but good. Not hyped, but I think I, I, I have better memories of that match than I think most people do. Like, no one really talks about it, but I thought that that was in a lot of ways, the best major final of the year. Oh, I would agree with that. I would definitely agree right? with that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. One last Cincinnati thing. Remember how people freaked out about Sabre? <laughs> Remember Sabre. Sabre was like, if there was a tennis dictionary, like the word we added to the dictionary this year was Sabre. For sure. Those For of you sure. don't remember uh, or don't know, uh, Sabre is an acronym, S-A-B-R, chance for sneak attack by Roger. The, my favorite thing about that fucking acronym. It's so dorky. Is that he's, is that he's in it. Yeah. Like it's a tactic <laughs> that's not even named after him. It's specific to him. Right. So it's not like one of those Very gymnastic specifically, moves that gets named after right. somebody. Yeah. Someone else can do like a, a Pemchenko twist, right? It, it's the name of a move. Mm-hmm. But no one can, else can saber. Because no one else, except for Roger Federer, can sneak attack by Roger. <laughs> That's pretty true. Could, yeah, nobody else could. could I'm could just saying. It. And do you remember how much it pissed off Novak Djokovic? 
That was my oh, favorite no, part. That was so bad. He was so, so angry bad. about it. It's so disrespectful. It was so like you mad, bro, about Saber. <laughs> and he really was. It was the dorkiest tennis thing to be mad about. Like, you're mad that somebody is doing a thing that is well within the rules. And is being effective. Yeah. And is effective. And that fans love. I mean, like, you know, fans, commentators, everybody's like, oh, shit, he just sabers. Oh, like, it was like a fun little moment. Because tennis can be a little monotonous. Obviously, it can be metronomic and things can, you know, just sound through a rut. People like of like the Brad Gilbert variety were freaking out in the best ways about Saber. They loved it. It was like a new there exciting. There were so many, about. yeah, so many Saber graphics. Oh, ooh, yes, good pun, but true. Yeah, good exactly. Um, uh, Saber metrics. Saber metrics is what I guess if you will. Pun. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, Saber. Saber was a little nuts. Like the hype around Saber for yeah. what it was. You know, I mean, it, it's not that big of a deal. But ready for U.S. Open? Oh, remember when Agnieszka Radwanska and Angelique Kerber played a great match in Stanford? Yes, I was going to mention Kerber because we've left out a couple Kerber things. I was going to try to find a time to remember Kerber because Kerber, this was the year of epic Kerber. Kerber had her epic Charleston final against She's like my hipster hipster MVP. Kind of, definitely like the best actress in a a supporting role player oh, for, for sure. sure in terms of for just sure. like bringing drama and consistent performance that was all out and gut-wrenching uh, so their highlights of kerber include keith kerber charleston final was cray uh kerber muguruza wimbledon amazing kerber radvanska at stanford was also incredible kerber azarenka at the u.s open was incredible and i think probably more kerber stuff- halep was like really riveting in toronto yeah no there were so many good kerber matches and she got back into the top 10 she like reasserted herself and still brings the drums in a crazy way. That's Angelique. Kerber was Stuttgart final. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just was dry. She just has this amazing ability to do it. Kerber Sharapova, Stuttgart. She beat mm-hmm. Sharapova there, first match. Tough draw for Maria, gosh. Um, yeah, that's uh, Kerber was definitely a sleeper hit. And that Sanford match was maybe the best one. Mm-hmm. Remember, it was, only, it, was dope. it was only on ESPN3, which was balls. I was trying to watch it from an offsite, and it was, like, buffering, and I was not happy because it was so good. So, so good. I was in the stands. It was great. It was lovely to watch. And, you know, Aga was wearing her disco dress. It was just every- – it was under the light. <laughs> it was amazing. Remember when Aga had disco dresses? Those were really good. Aga's, Aga's – a lot of stuff up their game for Aga, I feel like. Yeah, well, you know, when somebody has the nicknames of, you know, the magician or the ninja or whatever, you got to – you gotta bring your game. Remember when you totally came up with Ninja and now everybody uses it? I know. That's so weird. That's a that's 40 deuce thing. Only, literally the only one that actually caught on of all my nicknames. Well, ghouls, I guess, for Gergis. Um, But not by, like, main commentators. Like, everybody uses right. Ninja now. Everybody says Ninja. WTA that... headlines say Ninja on them even before you started working for them. I mean, yeah. It's, it's a thing. Yeah, I think that really is the only one. Oh, I had so many good nicknames. That is not the one that I thought was going to stick. So the U.S. Open. U.S. Open. I have one that was during the beginning of U.S. Open. My one was going to be, we mentioned Jeannie earlier, but Jeannie Bouchard had a ridiculous U.S. Open on every level. You know, like good, the bad, and the, and the concussed. It was, she started out working with Jimmy Connors, which was such a Oh my God, remember when Jeannie Bouchard was working with Jimmy exactly. Connors? Exactly, remember that? That was crazy. Yeah. Then she played mixed doubles with Kyrgios, who was like the bad boy at that point it was so edgy and they had like those long conversations on changeovers that were all mic'd and everything and they were just like and she was trying to reel him in and it was just it was fascinating and they were about to play Hingis 
pays in the next round, which would have been incredible. It would have been the battle of like four extremely big personalities uh, out there. And that would have been something. And then she slipped and hit her head and pulled out. And the way that news came out piece by piece was bizarre and all of it. Jeannie's, Jeannie's U.S. Open, especially the Connors part, which is so out of left field. Obviously, the falling and concussion was also very out of nowhere. Um, but the the Connors part was, was so nuts. And, yeah, that was being out there watching them work together and matching lavender tops. It was something. It was something. And do you remember, I mean, this is a past season remember when yeah do you remember when jimmy connors was coaching maria sharapova for that <laughs> blink of an eye and then basically announced his firing uh with a tweet he was drinking vodka vodka on the rocks and what do you tweet if like it doesn't work out with genie molson on ice canadian I, club you definitely don't put beer on ice no, because that's disgusting, right? Yeah. So, like, are there other Canadian, famous Canadian Canadian club is whiskey, Wilson? right? Yeah, but I don't know if it's – people don't drink it. There must be Canadian hard alcohol. I mean, it's Canada. The winters are so long. If there are Canadian alcohols, can you please tell us, yeah. listeners of NCR? Canada because is one I, of our biggest listener bases, actually. Yeah, so, like, yeah. If, if Jimmy Connors were to craft that tweet, what would it read? Yeah, that's a good, good question. I'm just curious is what I'm a saying. A brief remember when for Marty Fish retiring at the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. which happened. Mm-hmm. He like could have gone further. Marty Fish actually, after playing really badly um, in, I want to say, Atlanta, or one of the matches in his comeback he played was awful. He actually played like pretty dang good. He did. He was playing he like – it was almost like you're playing so well, you seem happy. Like why retire? I know he was happy because he was retiring. You got to pick his ending. But like he could have – he was playing – easily top 50 tennis without having much match, match practice at all. He beat Troitsky in, in Cincinnati and went five and probably and served for the match against Lopez, who was a seed in, uh, in New York. So shout out to Marty Fish. And Marty Fish doing everything, bringing his awareness to mental illness more uh, openly during this year, this final year, after having struggled with that somewhat more privately for several years. Uh, that was good to see. So it was definitely a good way for him to go out and he seemed to be pretty satisfied with how it all went not losing that match he was pretty crushed by that but otherwise yeah yeah. i mean uh the u.s open for me outside of obviously the major talking points which we've gone over time and time and again in terms of serena Serena losing vinci and fabia and all that sort of stuff i'm gonna give a hat tip to david kane okay my good pal who uh wta web editor david kane for for triggering this in my memory on our recent podcast on WTA Insider, which I just never really thought of, but it was epic. Chetkovska Wozniacki. Oh, that was so good. US Open. That was a really good match. So good. And again, another nut, another nutshell of how disappointing Caroline's year was. I mean, she was defending finalists at the US Open. And Chekovska is just an Chekovska is one of my favorite players to watch. She's like has a great combination of variety, just really clean strokes, and just enough of a head case to keep it interesting all the time. And she, so she's often, you know, for, she's definitely an underachiever results wise. I mean, she has top fifteen talent for sure, and never really come close to that. But has had a lot of big wins, including over Wozniak at slams before. And this match was a third set tiebreak and just incredible. And Chekovska played so well in that tiebreak in the final moments. Like the way that final, all of it was just phenomenal. And the crowd was really it into was, it. It was a late yeah, match. That it, fi- was, it was great. 
that final tie break was like, you know, you might as well just cue it up with like that Eminem lose yourself song, yeah. like, you know, pumping in the background because it was, it was just one of those, like she just gripped and ripped and hit the right shot at every moment. It was, with it was variety incredible. too. Yeah. Grip and rip with, with like, variety as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing that David and I were talking about, um, about that match is that, you know, tennis Twitter can be a very cynical place mm-hmm. in a very, in a place that is, uh, very unimpressed. I feel like tennis Twitter is very much just the Michaela Maroney face. Is that kind of Twitter in general? Yeah, maybe. But tennis Twitter, it just seems like things happen. People are like, meh, you know? <laughs> True. But it was so interesting that night, because I think I was live tweeting it for the WTA, um, of seeing people kind of fall in love with Petra Tchaikovska. You know, like people, you don't get to see her often, and, and she's obviously coming off of a lot of injuries, and um, she doesn't get that sort of stage. Yeah. Um, as often as, as one would hope. People were just so united in seeing this woman try to pull off this big win. And um, that was pretty that was pretty memorable. That was pretty cool. That was cool. Yeah, because for all of the – I mean, she's been top 30 before, but Tchaikovsky really has had, hasn't had very many, like, big court moments ever. So that was cool. Yep. That, that was very cool for sure. Um, I think you mentioned it briefly, but, like, on the Vinci-Panetta front, I was still – I remember being very impressed – that the prime minister of the country flew to New York for the final. I thought that with was Fabio really Fanini with Fabio Fanini in his in his plane in jorts. And that in was jorts. Fabio Fanini wearing jorts, like fairly sp- legs spread wide. That was memorable. <laughs> um, and and Flavio said that, and he's like, you know, I gotta stop playing tennis. <laughs> I, I, gotta, I gotta stop. I'm done. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, finito. Um, the other thing, remember when, remember when I tweeted, live tweeted the entire U.S. Open men's final with nothing but Britney gifts? I do. That was great. That was fun. Do you get good reviews for that overall? Because sometimes my whimsical, no. my whimsical, uh, my whimsical live tweets, I remember tweeting about some, I think it was Djokovic Murray, the French, about crepes, making crepe puns. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, that didn't get well received by some people. I enjoyed it. I tweet, no. I tweet for me more than them. Exactly. I definitely tweet for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was fine because um, by that time, by the time the U.S. Open had rolled around, I was with the WTA, so I did not have to go to the men's final. Um, obviously, the WTA tournament was done um, the yeah. night before, the day before. So, and it was an incredibly rainy day. The weather was not looking great. I had spent the morning with Flavia, like running around the city, so I was kind of tired by the time that it was time to like maybe hop on the bus to head down to Flushing for the men's final. Was was Fabio still in his shorts that day? He was still wearing shorts. He was. <laughs> he was in shorts. But uh, yeah, so I just was like, uh, I kind of think this match is going to get rained out. I'm not going to head down to site. And also, what I'm, I'm, I'm going to literally hop on a bus and go to site and then sit at my desk in the press room and watch the match on TV when I'm not writing about it. None of this makes sense. Yeah. I was staying in a perfectly nice hotel. There was room service and an HD television and Wi-Fi. I was good. So I was basically lying in bed <laughs> watching that match, live tweeting Britney gifts, And it was great. It was fun. That sounds amazing. Yeah. All right. Highly recommend it. It's been pretty recent, but do you remember anything in particular, any couple things from this fall? I have one from the World Tour Finals, which is skipping ahead. It's very go small whimsical. Go skip there. Remember Andy Murray's mid-match haircut? I don't know why this, this, this was not a major thing at all, but the fact like the internet went crazy over it, 
made me both happy and sad about what like sports media and sports consumers value in 2015. Like not the match, not anything happening. The fact that he like pulled out scissors and cut a quarter of an inch off his bangs, or I guess they call them fringe in London. Yeah, that was that was whimsical indeed. Just a kind of um, thing that tennis Twitter yearns for, I guess. They don't like. They're nice. not always fans of Wozniacki Tchaikovsky, but they match haircuts. They're, they're so into. They're all out, they're all on it. I think that it's funny that in 2015, this is a season that began with Serena Williams asking for an espresso mm-hmm. against Flavia Panetta of Italy, and the season virtually ended with Venus Williams being offered an espresso from Roberta Vinci, which is a moment that occurred oh, yes. Wuhan. <laughs> that was great. That ending of that match was tremendous. <laughs> it was such a random test moment. Actually, yeah. do you remember earlier in the year when Venus had her testy handshake with Beezus? Yes. That was a great one. And she like, yeah. it had this like, it was kind of feisty. It was so Venus. And Venus and Beezus just kind of like stared at her. And Venus just looked at her and was like, do we have a problem here? And like Venus towering over Barbara Zalabova-Stritzva, I guess was she, Barbara Stritzva that, by that point. Um, yeah, that was, uh, Venus had, Venus got feisty. and Venus had some moments this Venus, year. Venus was, yeah, came, was, took, took her rings off for this one. and uh, Yeah, she did. She uh, finished top seven, so good for her. For real. Last one, Courtney. What's your, what's your, what is your final memory of this year? Joanna Conta. <laughs> I love that we that was Con- weird. That was so out of nowhere. We're going to have to end on Kanta because it wasn't that – she didn't fluke at all her results. I mean, she, she definitely won those matches, and they were really good. And she just looked like a completely different player in the second half of the season after Wimbledon, going on that big, um, you know, uh, unbeaten run through uh, a couple of ITFs and then mm-hmm. into the U.S. Open and – you know, really, I thought played really well against Petra Kvitova, but lost in straight sets. Um, and uh, then she she kind of picked it up again in the fall uh, in Asia, rallying back from I want to say one five down. Yes. To Simona Halep. Yes. The quarterfinals, I think. I think it was uh, first in, match. First match in Wuhan. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in Wuhan, and then backing that up, playing another tough three setter against Venus Williams. That was really good. Yeah, I mean, she that was impressive. I'm, I'm interested to see what Joe Conta does in 2016. Even if she just levels off into being a steady top 50 player, great. Yeah, no, for sure. Because she sure. was I mean, not, she, never considered even that before. No, but the way that she was playing, honestly, the way that Joe Conta was playing in the second half of the uh, 2015 season deserves to be seated at majors. I mean, she was playing top 32 ball. So it'd be I'd be very curious to see if if she can she can make that happen by the time Wimbledon rolls around. I think she will. I know sure. people. I know um, we get more questions about this player than anybody else. And I know you talked to her in the WTA podcast. So plug for that. But speaking of British tennis, how you saw her recently at the Sharapova EXO for NCR update. I recommend the WTA Insider interview, obviously. But how's Laura Robson doing? We get that question like weekly. We do get that question <laughs> weekly. Um, she's doing really good. I mean, I this sounds really weird and, and rather superficial, but when Laura walked in and she sat down, she was wearing kind of Nike gear, a pair of like Nike, uh, you know, leggings and um, a, a track jacket. But she looked, you know, thinner than I had seen her the last time. Okay. Um, so you know, the, a lot of the discussion around Laura Robson over the course of her her young and budding career has been at times unfairly 
regarding uh, regarding her fitness. British tabloids, yeah, I've latched onto that a lot. Yeah, yeah, and it's been, you know, it's always been a thing, and uh, I've always kind of argued, look, you know, everybody's body is different, and and just because you think that somebody looks a certain way, that that actually isn't an insight into what their training regimen is at times. So. Yeah, no, she looked she looked good. She she played a couple of good, you know, mixed doubles matches. She's skipping the Australian swing and, and she said she'll start using her protected ranking a few weeks before um Indian Wells, which I would presume would be probably Mexico. I, I, I would doubt that she goes to the Middle East to start using those. So um but I could be wrong. Um and then her protected ranking goes up in Eastbourne. So I would then presume that she's looking for a wild card into Wimbledon. Yeah. Um because she's going to use her final Grand Slam wild card at the French Open. But she was Laura Robson. She was, you know, chatty, funny, going off on tangents. The the Laura that I've I've come to know over the course of her her uh, her young career. So yeah. so looking forward to 2016, hopefully being a positive one for her because she's been struck down by a lot of bad luck this year. Speaking of Laura Robson, my weird segue into my final remember when, which I only just realized I hadn't said yet. This is the most obscure remember one of all of them. But do you remember? Do I remember my own excitement at finding out that Andre Rublev was in a One Direction cover band? Because that was incredible. Do you remember? Do you remember this? I don't remember this. Oh my gosh! At and, all. Andre Rublev did a was in a band called something. I don't remember. Um, the other direction? No, it wasn't like multiple direct or like you know one way like you know both ways i don't know what the opposite one direction is um <laughs> but it was something i mean let me look this up actually uh so andre rublev's is it a is it a what looks like it appears to be an all russian boy band that does a cover of one direction's steal my girl his band is called summer afternoon it came out during the u.s open and there's a video of them like walking around this park and it's it's weirdly earnest all of it is exciting to me having talked previously <laughs> about you know designing possible dream ATP filled boy bands that Andre Rublev had the initiative to do it himself is great so he can play us out here with his with his solo <laughs> So thank you for that, Andre. And do you remember, guys, that you guys were awesome so far in our Kickstarter, Courtney? That was one thing that happened after the season ended uh, just a couple weeks ago. And our Kickstarter is going swimmingly, amazingly well. As of recording this, we have about $12,500 pledged so far by our backers, which is awesome beyond comprehension still. And we would love to still see it keep going. No doubt. And I don't have to remember how awesome our uh, backers have been and our listeners have been because remembering implies that I have forgotten. And we never would. I would never forget that. No. So it, it's been incredible. It's been incredibly humbling as we keep saying. But again, uh, you know, this is already what, four times over what we had initially asked, which was $3,000. We're now, you know, closely approaching 13000 Um in that span we've hit one stretch goal um, mm-hmm. which was at twelve thousand dollars that we would promise you guys that in 2016 we will release a blooper a reel. bloopers episode a whole uh, episode you think? yeah i would uh, i suspect we might have enough for an entire episode but uh but a reel at least 
um, of of NCR because Ben is the one that primarily edits this podcast. I chip in every once in a while, but this is really Ben's editing chore every week. And I have no doubt that there are many stupid things that I've said over the course of the last Gosh. year that I'm so happy will remain on the cutting room floor. But in 2016, I'm turning off the shredder. Yeah, you guys get to see it. So that's pretty cool. So we'll have other stretch goals um, as well to kind of enhance the product you're already getting. But as we've said in the in past podcasts, you know, obviously we've hit our, our basic goal. But as that number keeps growing, as we as we get more money in, as we have more backers, it just creates a situation where we can do even more. And um, in terms of some of the projects that that we've always dreamed of doing that we can't. And, uh, you know, if it's, it's incredibly exciting. I know particularly for Ben because he has far more freedom in terms of how we can use this money and and what we can do and and kind of unleashing him to report on some of these, uh, these stories that we have ideas about. It's I'm, I'm really stoked. I'm really stoked to see what happens. It'll be pretty cool. We have our next stretch goal actually out already. I tweeted it before, but if we get to 13,000, we are going to do a live audio show like a radio call-in style show at some point during the year which would be different for us and that's what we did when, when previous podcasts we'd do that some and i know there's some tennis shows that do that now um i think steph nepple's show does that uh yeah it's gonna be interesting and different and more sports radio-ish we can change our names to like you know boomer and the mad dog bringing you no <laughs> challenges remaining or something and that would be that's a really good voice <laughs> thank you. you should definitely stick with that forever i i <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm getting excited for to get to use my Australian accent a lot in Australia. So, but I'll bring oh, in. I would just confuse them a lot with Boomer and the Mad Dog. Maybe that's a good look for me. I don't know. Maybe I should just talk that way the entire month. Could I pull that off? Definitely not. But Does it's worth trying. Does to get like those audio things where you say Boomer and the Mad Dog, and then there's like a barking dog? It's all tremendous. I assume that. See, your money's going to a good place, you guys. That's all we're saying. No, but thank you guys again. We will hopefully not turn that way completely. We might do it for one episode, but it'd be fun. Uh, but yeah, but keep those donations coming. Again, like we said before, um, we also have been doing a few updates more for just backers only. We'd love to see the number of base number of donors go up, even if it's just giving us the, the minimum, even just even below the minimum of $5, you'll get on there and seeing that groundswell of support, which is still so far a, a small percentage of our average listenership per week uh it'd be awesome and so we know you're out there we know you're out there but just you know remind us that you're there yeah exactly and we'll be excited seriously like i get so excited every time i i get an alert that somebody gave that somebody added themselves to our list of of backers and it's very exciting so we still have three weeks left for it um it's ending when the australian open is only three weeks away crap um yeah (laughs) so it's ending when the australian open starts and we look forward to it and hopefully you guys can keep keep it going, and we'll roll out more stretch goals, and it'll be it'll be Boomer and the Mad Dog good times. All right. In the meantime, thank you for not listening to Boomer and the Mad Dog. Thank you for listening to us on No Challenges Remaining. Uh, if you want to follow along with us and you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. If you want to subscribe to our show and get it automatically, you can subscribe to us on any podcast app, including iTunes, where you leave us reviews, and we like that. And any, any other podcast app that has reviews is also appreciated. If you want to send us questions for upcoming shows, probably not a lot of questions coming up in January. Pretty busy time of year. 
but we'll definitely take them and save them. And if something big happens, I will certainly get to it. Uh, no challenges remaining at gmail.com is our email there. And you contact, contact us about whatever you want. We're happy to take non-question submissions and notes and complaints and whatever else you have for us as well. Uh, and, and suggestions for Canadian liquors for Courtney and whatnot. So, Not to drink, just as a joke. No offense, Canada. Are you really turning down liquor from Canada? I am not a I'm not a Canadian club person. No. I don't drink Molson. So if it's something not like, even like Labatt's? Nah. Not really. I associate these things with being good because I watched a lot of hockey when I was a kid and they always had a lot of commercials for Canadian beer and hockey. And uh I obviously was not drinking beer when I was eight years old. Or I mean, that's not obvious <laughs> to some people, but I was not. And uh yeah, so Anyway, I don't know. I have positive brand associations with Canadian alcohol that I probably shouldn't. Okay, that's okay. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with them. They're perfectly fine. I just don't th- don't think to drink them. Typically, the import fees are weird. I don't know. They're they're not worth the cash for me living in America. But you know, people do people. <laughs> so, what is worth the cash is our Netflix subscriptions, which this recent month brought us the show Making a Murderer, which Courtney and I are going to combine our shared individual rent raves into one about this show. This will be spoiler heavy, so as I said at the beginning, if you would like to watch this show without being spoiled, and we suggest that you do heartily, yes? Yeah, no, I I think that you should watch it without being spoiled. Uh, In in particular, what I consider the big spoiler is whether or not this is a a show about – yeah, is the verdict. Whether or not the men who are accused of the crime that they are accused of, uh, whether the jury finds them guilty or not. So we will be talking about that specifically. We will tell you uh, what happened there. So if you are interested in watching the show, I would recommend not listening to the next segment. Um, and turning it off and listening to it later. We'll give you a little outro and don't come back from that. So here, <laughs> here's playing some of you guys out. Bye, guys. And the rest of you who have watched, stick around. You found you, you watched the show before me, or you started it before me. I, I we overlapped somewhat, but your tweets about getting excited about it tipped me off to it. And it's a weird thing in the Netflix binge watching era. Like this show kind of felt a little bit. I enjoyed it thoroughly, but it kind of was a chore because it, it was this ten hour mountain of a show. I felt like that I had to climb before I could like safely go back on the internet. Yeah, there was that. I mean, I I intentionally. When watching, so making of a making a murder show on Netflix, ten episode documentary series uh, that took over t- about ten years to film, um, and it tracks the story of Stephen Avery, a man from Wisconsin, who uh, was, it, as we find out in the show, falsely accused of a attempted rape yeah. of a woman, but was in prison for eighteen years, was eventually exonerated, um, and went back to his hometown in Wisconsin, Manitowoc County. Was, Manitowoc County and was subsequently arrested and charged with the murder of a, uh, a uh, woman, um, a young woman who had visited his home to take some pictures of cars. Yeah. 
um, freelance photographer. Yeah. Yeah. Freelance photographer. It also implicates his uh, nephew, Brendan Dassey, um, who was also charged and convicted of, uh, of murdering her. And really, I mean, the, the show, I, you know, I did the same as you, Ben. I didn't go onto the internet intentionally. I didn't Google it. I didn't want to read it. I was watching it with my sister and we both kind of had this pact, like, you're not allowed to Google it. Don't go on Wikipedia. I'm not going to go on Wikipedia. Like, I want to watch this all the way through. And what was incredible to me about watching the, at least when we talk about the experience of watching the show, is, first of all, I watched it very cynically. I watched it thinking, okay, we are at the mercy of the editors yes. of the show. Yes, we were. Okay? What are we not being told? What other theories you know are they being fair you know i mean obviously the 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 show is very pro defendant very very pro defendant yeah it's effectively a document it's but it, the whole argument the whole show is an argument um for the innocence i mean you're, Stephen Avery. you're with the defense lawyers in their cars you're with the defendant's family in his home his parents uh in their in their trailer or i guess whatever house they have out there on the auto lot. Um, yeah. And that was definitely part of it. And in a way that was very, I think the show gets a lot of quick comparisons to serial in the way it sort of dished out this compelling story of a whodunit. Um, but yeah, this was, it felt a little bit more, there's a, there's a movie um, or documentary that came out a while ago called murder on a Sunday afternoon, which is, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that, which yeah. is about a wrongly convicted teenager in Florida, I think. Yeah, it, it, it felt a little bit more like that and that you were supposed to, I think they, it was, and I understand your cynicism, I had some of it too, especially later later on in the trial, um, late in the show, like what do we miss? Like there was some some line in Brendan's trial about cuffs being part of evidence or something. And I was like, wait, what cuffs? Like where did this come right. from? And just like feeling like the editors or the, the people had some sort of, they clearly wanted you to come out with a certain way, which is not saying that, that the whole show was at all inherently flawed because of that. But that was, yeah, I did have that same sort of what am I not getting here because of you guys right. and your angle. And and you have to kind of, I mean, I think as a responsible viewer, you have to be skeptical. So there, there was as, that aspect of it. There was also just, you know, watching it and waiting for the other shoe to drop. Even up until maybe the second to last episode, you know, before the or after, you know, before the verdict was actually announced, I kept waiting. And even after the the episode, even in the episode after the verdict was announced, I kept waiting for like there to be a twist. Yeah, I was waiting. That's the same thing. I was waiting for another twist. Yes. For either for like a jinx type moment where they confess to it or one of them. Mm It becomes clearly Uh, actually. Spoiler alert for the jinx. Jeez. Everyone's gotten that spoiler. (laughs) Um I haven't even watched the drinks. I know that happened, but, um, but something like that. Yeah. Or they get like exonerated somehow. I kept waiting the pacing of the show. I think the show was too long and I realized I'm coming with criticisms of it early, but that generally I think this is all entirely positive, but it just, it was, it felt, yeah, not tight in some way. It was, that's interesting to me. Cause I felt that it was what was so refreshing about it was that it actually, you know, in a, in a, in a time where we're so used to consuming, particularly, uh, and maybe this is my own bias, obviously from being a lawyer before, but but you're used to seeing representations of the law on television that are just so completely inaccurate, particularly with respect to the condensing of how long it takes to go through a trial, 
to go through a trial. Yeah. No, and that, what is actually done. Yeah. No. So I appreciated that from my perspective. I guess I guess I'm more saying that in terms of the sort of a bit I wouldn't call the, what I'm going to call the filler of the show, like there I I think some of the uh, talks with the defense lawyer, some of the talks with his parents, some of the a lot of the sweeping aerial shots of Manitowoc County, just piled on a little. Just because my own I just finished this earlier today, so I'm fresh on come and feeling like I had to sprint through this to avoid spoilers and to be able to talk to you about it. And to watch it before my Netflix streaming ability stop in Australia with its geo blocking and its slow internet. Yeah, I, I, but overall, scratch all that side. I guess it felt on that way of being thorough. It was definitely a plus. It felt almost more like a book than a TV show in the amount of content you were given. Like it was, and also maybe a little bit the way that it could be repetitive or hammering things home time and time again. But the thoroughness of it, I agree, was was really great. And why I am hopeful that there weren't major things left out because they put so much in that if they were leaving something out it'd be a very very conscious decision to try to skew it yeah exactly right and and i think that if they left something major out it would undermine the entire project yeah and they haven't gotten criticized for that i've seen at least well okay so have you have you googled ken kratz (laughs) prosecutor ken kratz is this about his texting thing at the end they mentioned yeah there was some of that but yeah, apparently he gave some interview where he or and did like some email exchange with like on Reddit, okay, because uh, he's like bitching and moaning about how like no one like that's misrepresented and they left out all these details about all the evidence that pointed towards Stephen Avery and you know he never got a chance to respond to the defense's arguments within like or even the filmmakers' arguments that are made within the movie and I'm like okay whatever like whatever. Hmm. You, sir, have lost a lot of credibility with me, so I don't really care. But I guess, like, getting into the meat and bones of things, what were your thoughts, Ben, so after go, watching... So to go to the whole, her... like, Adnan question of serial yeah. last time, what do I think happened? Yeah. I absolutely think that... I think that Brendan had nothing to do with it. I I think Agreed. I think that his, his parts of the show is what affected me a lot more. Like, the scene with him and the investigator... That his publicly appointed worst. Lawyer, that was like the most cringeworthy thing I've watched in a long time. Like that was just awful to watch. That scene. I, I, people who I, everyone I hope has seen this at this point. They're trying to make him like can, it was so unclear what their motive was or like what they thought they were doing here by like for by like really twisting his arm. They were convinced he was guilty first of all. His own court appointed people and trying to force him into a way that he could be, I guess, to set him up to take a plea or something. That, no, I mean, from, yeah, I will say this, like from the lawyer, from the legal perspective, you have a court appointed lawyer who is that Len guy he's who's awful. Terrible. Oh, he's so just bad. so terrible. Just everything about him. The minute that they mentioned that he had just lost, like, a he mentioned that he lost county judge. Yeah, he was like, I lost an election and I'm like sad about it. So, but like the minute that he mentioned that he ran for election, I was like, oh, so you're political. Yeah. And you're going to probably want to run again. And you know what you need to you have when you run for a circuit from a, ju- a judicial position in any county or state or city the support of law enforcement yeah and he didn't have brendan's back at all and that's his client. ever ever so that's that's one thing but the other thing too and i i've seen this happen with public de- with defense lawyers um because i know some and i know public defenders is that they are so driven by this idea that they genuinely sometimes – I don't think this is the case with with Len. 
but many public defenders genuinely believe that they are they are helping their client by getting them to plea. Mm-hmm. Now, ninety five percent of the time, that's probably true. You know, your your client did something, or the evidence is so against him that you're like, look, there's just no way you're winning. Like, it's up to you. What do you want to do? You want to spend forty five years in jail, or I can get you out in two. Right? Yeah. So there is a, a rationale and a reason, you know, a pragmatic decision to confess or to sign some document or whatever. In this case, though, with Brendan Dassey, you just really felt he his like kind of stupidity, for lack of a better word, was just being exploited from both sides. It was so hard to watch, like, because he like clearly had no idea what was going on. Like, he just did not grasp the severity of like when he was in the thing where he wound up being his confession. Yeah, and then, the he's, and then he's like, "Are you guys gonna let me out? Because like I have a project due at school at like one forty. And it's like, and even when they come in and say, "I gotta arrest you," and he's like, "So can I go home tomorrow?" Yeah, <laughs> it's like, like no he, concept. He had no idea that he had just confessed to murder, himself. essentially, or being an accessory at best to murder. And yeah, and all of that was just yeah, it was just tough and irresponsible to watch. And yeah, and that's and that's where um, some of it was interesting in that. They mentioned very briefly, or they come up came up later, like what high esteem the police were held in in Manitoba County generally, or in in America mm-hmm. generally. I think probably small town America, for the most part, in a decade ago. And it just you you remember so much of the current in this decade has been like anti police in the media, or like police uh, definitely at least scrutiny in a way that's not there, that wasn't there, and the parts where the press was getting upset at the defense lawyers. I mean, like, well, you know, what's going to happen if you accuse this cop of being a bad cop and, like, his kids gets made fun of at school? <laughs> like, that line was just like, what, really? Do you realize, like, they're trying to send him to jail for life and you're worried, like, a kid's going to get made fun of? Yeah. Everything, all of that seemed a bit... A bit well, it was a ramble there, I realized, but, but yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I totally agree with you, and I think that one of the aspects of... and. You know, what I thought was so smart about this entire documentary was they did a really good job of capturing all sides of the criminal machine, mm-hmm. criminal law machine. And by that, I mean, like, the title of the documentary is Making a Murderer. Mm-hmm. Which you, at the start of it, you're kind of like, what do they mean? Like, whatever. But at least for me, like, as the, the episodes went on, it's like, this is how you create one out of thin air is is you have a police department who is has a conflict of interest and has an incentive to skew evidence one way you have a prosecutor who has already made up his mind and is driving the investigation a certain way you have the media who are the only at that time the only you know um access point to the public yeah right what they say, how they shape a case, is really important. I thought it was so interesting and how close attention the family paid to what the media was saying every single day on the news. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was supposed to be at five o'clock. Okay, I'll catch it up. I'll catch it at six, or yeah. you know, like whatever. Um, and one thing that I thought was so crazy—I mean, it was interesting, but it was also so crazy—were like how much of this trial was being conducted publicly. Mm. This jury was not sequestered. Were they not? Okay. No, they were not. Uh, I think that finally at one point late in the documentary, maybe like episode six or seven, 
one of them mentions like somebody mentioned something about how like the jury wasn't sequestered. So they sit there and listen to all of this stuff. And obviously, you know, you have all these motions about what lawyers can and can't say in a, in the, the actual trial. Then they go home. And yes, there are admonitions that you give to the jury. You're not allowed to read about the case. You're not allowed to talk to anybody about the case. You're not allowed to watch television. They do. Yeah. And these lawyers are giving these press conferences that are inflammatory, particularly the prosecution. You have, even before all of it, the prosecutor, Ken Kratz, tainting the entire jury pool by taking Brendan Dassey's confession and reading it effectively off to the public as though it's fact. We now know what happened that night. Yeah. If you're under 15 years old, please don't watch this. His sweaty uncle opened the door. I mean, there is just an incredible amount of like inappropriate detail that's going in there that's based off of an uncorroborated confession that he's just giving to the public. It was that was I think if anything the most shocking moment to me was that hmm. uh, that and then the interrogation so, of Brendan Dassey so, yeah, so by you, his own investigator. So yeah, you're a lawyer. I guess just if you can brief, briefly, how unusual was is, is any of the lawyer? Because people will be shocked by a lot of lawyers in this thing. Um, how un, unusual was anything they did, or how how did it make you feel as a someone who's been through this whole world, not the criminal D world, but just right. general law world if you have any take on that side i do the weird thing is that watching the lawyers even from watching from the ken kratz side um i mean i think that brendan dassey's lawyer len kaczynski Mm -hmm. he was off base on every level he was unethical at every turn um you don't let your client be interrogated your 16 year old client be interrogated by investigators without you being present yeah I, I was so glad in the final episode they cycled back to how bad he was because that was like yeah. that Brendan's first Brendan's episode I guess he had one kind of to himself was like the most shocking part of the whole series to me like episode yep. four I think it is exactly um, it's it's just shocking and so he was terrible now when you talk about Ken Kratz and you, I mean I thought that Stephen Avery's attorneys across the board were fantastic yeah um. Dean Strang, Jerome Buting, um, his civil rights lawyers from before, even his court-appointed lawyer, the first one, the woman, she was dope. She was, she was cool. I liked her. Yeah. I liked her a lot. So I think that he had, he had pretty good representation. But even from Ken Karatz's position and even from the – I mean I would hear some of the rulings from the judge and I would cringe. But I also kind of knew like that was expected. Like more often than not, judges are former prosecutors. Mm-hmm which means that they come at cases with the prosecutor's eye and they're going to be a little bit more forgiving to law enforcement. They're going to be a little bit more forgiving to the prosecutor's case. Uh, defense is constantly swimming upstream and, and they're constantly fighting against the presumption because we know in the States that if you get accused, most people think, Oh, it's because you did something wrong. Yeah. Not because the cops are doing something unethical or things like that. So across the board, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised that the jury found them guilty. Um, I've, I've done trial. I've done, I've tried cases in front of juries and as much as I think that there's an admirable philosophy of thinking that jury trials are the way to go. A jury of your peers weighs in and sets the moral code for your, uh, community. In my experience, juries get it wrong way more often than they get it right. 
mm. because they're swayed by things that are completely irrelevant. That was one of the most. I, didn't, I don't think they. I, one thing I think this documentary was missing, which I would have liked to see, and I understand they probably couldn't get it. I would have liked to have seen one of the twelve final jurors interviewed. Yeah, I mean, they, they they were never going to get that. That was they I, only got the excused one, which was interesting, but he seemed a bit way too vested. Yeah, I mean, right? for, someone, thing who, where for I was someone who like, wasn't even in the decision. You. Yeah, I mean. But, like, that was one of the most interesting things to me is that the initial poll of the jury was, like, three guilty, seven not guilty, two undecided. And how that swung all the way from that to 12 guilty is pretty shocking to me. I, it's, the thing that frustrates me with respect to the jury system, um, and it's far more egregious in the, in the criminal justice system than it is in civil. And I was a civil lawyer. I wasn't a criminal lawyer. Although I did go to law school in order to become a prosecutor. And I decided against it once I realized kind of how the deck was stacked and I was like, nah, I don't, don't want to be Ken Kratz. I don't want to be Ken Kratz. And, and I dated a guy, one of, one of my ex-boyfriends was a public defender and we would have this discussion all the time about like, how can you be a public defender? Well, how can you be a prosecutor? Like it didn't, you know, like, well, how can you like w side with the prosecution? And, um, and it made, I don't know. I definitely was like, I, I respected what public defenders and criminal defense lawyers do more often than not and just because it's it's a tough 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 battle but juries just they really don't understand the concept of reasonable doubt yeah. and that's what's so frustrating is like i looking at that evidence that was presented and again even if even if these documentary filmmakers were completely biased and they skewed everything entirely towards Stephen Avery and they didn't yeah. include all of the details just based on what you hear like there's reasonable doubt We've, we we actually we kind of got tracked mid I sidetracked when we were talking about did they do it or not right, so, right we agree, so we agree on Brendan Stephen yep. what do you think I don't think he did it do you think he, had, think he had no involvement in this I don't know if he had involvement he may have had involvement but I don't think he did it I don't think he did the it either. biggest the biggest issue for me is the blood you can't. I think I don't see how you can. If the theory is that he slashed her throat, even if Brendan Dassey wasn't involved, but if you believe that Brendan Dassey, well, I mean, if, if Brendan Dassey's involved, then his entire story of what happened isn't what I happened, think right? Dassey's involved. I think we can almost dismiss I don't think Brendan Dassey. But no. even but even if you assume that Brendan Dassey was involved, so you assume that Brendan Dassey's story is accurate. Stephen Avery was supposed to have somehow abducted this woman in plain sight granted on his own property but you know his family property yeah but taken her from the car dragged her into the house or when she came into the house and then he like whatever grabbed her threw her on the bed roped her chained her to the bed attempted to rape her cut her throat then unchained her undid everything took her to the garage and then shot her on the head multiple times well, all, all of those previous and there is no blood Aren't all of those previous details, all the chaining stuff, all just from Brendan, who got it from well, that book? I presume, yeah. Yeah, so I, that's the only time we ever heard of it was so, from Brendan. Right. Uh, so, so without Brendan, you don't have a theory of how this murder happened. Right. Like, so the thing is, like, why would there be like tracks of her bloody hair in the trunk at any point if she get if he get if she's out on his property, and yeah. you know that doesn't make any sense. Why? I think once you find the the pinhole in the blood vial. <laughs> at evidence i think it's like you can't admit any blood at that point i would think yeah once that's on the table and i think you almost have to throw out the entire case at that point that's what i was thinking 
No, I, oh, I that think was so too. major, and it didn't, judges, didn't seem to get judges are very reluctant to do that. Yeah, um, declaring a mistrial or even for a judge to exclude evidence, it's it's a very difficult thing to get them to do. Yeah, um, especially when it's something that hurts the prosecution. So that's just always that's just always the case. So do you think that uh, that the cops framed him? Let's go to the next step. If you don't think he did uh, it, do you think that the cops were in there putting blood in the car? I would someone rule it did. out. I, I yeah. I I I don't know if the yeah. cops did it, but somebody did. Someone did. Yeah. I think that there's no. I think that with the cops' help. With the cops' help. I mean, I think that Jerry Buting makes a compelling argument. Like, there's no prints from Stephen Avery inside the car, and yet there is blood, which means that either he was if he was wearing gloves. But if he was wearing gloves, how did the hell did he bleed through the gloves? Um. You know that would obviously assume that the blood was coming from fingertips. Right. But uh, and also, yeah. and also, why would he not crush this car? Yeah. He's a car crusher. That's that was a big one to me. Yeah. All these different things added up. And yeah. And and the thing that will always be, you know, and this is something that Dean Strang brings up, I think, towards the end of everything, and who I thought was just very compelling and thoughtful. Um, and very f- more more of the two, the more philosophical one when it came to the nature of justice mm-hmm. um, and things like that. He was the the dark haired lawyer for Stephen Avery. Is like you know this is when when you sit in and you think about criminal law in in the states and you know really it should be not just the states but anywhere. What do you do? Are you a society that would rather put somebody in jail? even if there's a chance he didn't do it or are you a society who would rather let a guilty man go free? Right. I just don't think it, it, and sadly, I just don't think that's even a a societal issue. I think that's just human nature. Right. And you see it nowadays with, with everything that's going on in terms of security and um, you know, what happened in San Bernardino, what happened in Paris, what the discussions are and the tenor of the profiling and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And in the States and people are, Everybody thinks that right now we should be doing things that deprive people of liberty and freedom in order to ensure our safety. And that idea scares me. That worries me more so than than anything else. Like, really? Like, I don't know. Like, for me personally, like, just pure instinct, I just would rather... I don't know. Immigration let through somebody who's going to do something terrible. Yeah. Then exclude somebody who's done nothing wrong. I'm pretty much with you on that. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, and I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that this documentary kind of from a micro level, from a singular case, really illustrates a lot of just the problems and how we think about crime and justice. And, and again, another point that's made in the, in the documentary is like, you know, and this is definitely something that happens is this idea within law enforcement that a conviction equals justice. And also this idea that they are not necessarily trying to frame an innocent man. They're trying to yeah. strengthen the case of somebody they think is guilty. Right. That's a big distinction. It is a big distinction. Yeah. It, it, it's in a lot of ways, there's a very easy way to look at the Avery and Dassey cases and say these convictions, which I genuinely believe are wrongful convictions of innocent men, 
were the result of a bunch of people doing what they thought was best. Yeah. Like not actually acting out of malice or evil, I guess. But that the people who framed him genuinely thought he was guilty, that the prosecutor genuinely thought he was guilty and was going to, was hell bent on putting away somebody who they knew to be a dangerous person or thought that it was a dangerous person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't like they were trying to do like this evil, evil thing. But that's what's scary is when the system allows that people try their best and something an incredibly unfair and unjust result happens. That's yeah. just, I don't know. And I think it's I think the specter of the lawsuit a little bit makes my, me less forgiving, or, you know, less understanding of them. If there was a motive to get some sort of vengeance on this guy for that, which I don't discount. I don't discount it at all. Yeah. Um, because I think human nature is human nature. And I think, and I do believe um, that law enforcement at all levels feel pretty omnipotent and um, that they know what's right and they're fully, they're a hundred percent powerful and what they can do. They're, they're not going to get repercussions of because the system is skewed towards them. Yeah. Right. Prosecutors are more inclined to side with them. Departments are more inclined to cover up their, their mistakes. Um, judges are more inclined to forgive their mistakes. So are juries. The whole system is skewed that way. Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah. It's not supposed to be that way. Yeah. And I remember, like, my ex-boyfriend who was a public defender, I would ask him, like, how can you do it? Like, really? And his dad was a criminal defense lawyer as well. Hmm. And it just was, like, a really perplexing thing to me. I was like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't think I could do that. And I was like, how can you represent guilty people? You know, all of those questions that you ask somebody. Right. And it's And he was like, my job isn't to get them free. I'm not trying to free guilty people. He's like, I'm just trying to make sure that everybody does their job, which is to obey the Constitution. Yeah. Which is what Len did not do. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like to him and he was a public defender, which the public defense system in America is totally screwed. Like they don't they're not funded. Um, They are up against prosecution. uh, You know, the state, which has tons of resources and they're, you know, they're dealing with you know, 10, 15, 20 case dockets yeah. at a time. And it's, it's just rough for them. But, you know, that's why he was like, I, I can't like actually do justice. All I can do is like look at a person's file and say, okay, well, was this search legal? Was this confection that was this confession legit? What, you know, did the cops basically did the cops break any rules to put you in the position that you are in? And, um, and I think that in the Avery case, the cops did. Yeah. So, I mean, they obviously the last episode had all of these various appeals they had falling flat. I, 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 and obviously, like it did with Serial, this attention the case is getting, although this was obviously a much more high-profile case than Adon Sayed's case by many degrees. Um, this was on the front page of the New York Times and things like that when it first happened. Uh, do you – is there any hope? I, I feel like with Brendan, at least, I have, I have some hope that Brendan might get something out of this show. I feel like Brendan was an afterthought in the original thing. Um, but if, maybe that's just me being optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I would I would hope so. But I think that because typically with criminal defense appeals and I've worked on I've done Innocence Project um, work before yeah. when I was a lawyer. So I think the case that I worked on was an arson case. And um, 
the thing the problem is is that when you go through like the state appeals you know like so you you get this state conviction then you appeal to the, yeah. the appellate court and then the supreme court that's when you're challenging procedural issues oh this evidence was let in it shouldn't have been let in and that made the the the, the result this um you know the judge erred uh, made a mistake in doing x y or z the prosecution shouldn't have done this this or that um this witness shouldn't have been allowed to testify those sorts of things if you take it up through to the wisconsin supreme court and they're like yeah no nothing was wrong or okay yeah that was a mistake but it didn't really affect the outcome so nothing changes then your remedies are federal typically to then appeal to the on the federal level that's when the usually the the innocence project gets involved and at least in my experience and i'm not an expert in criminal law at all but at least in my experience you basically once you take it to the federal level basically have to prove pure innocence yeah not just which means what, not just need, not not reasonable doubt it's no longer reasonable doubt you actually have to prove that new and and you have to do it by saying that new evidence evidence that was unavailable at the time of the initial trial has now come to light which definitively proves that this man did not do it. Yeah. It's an incredibly high standard. So you need new evidence. It can't even be something that was like overlooked. It was because the argument like, is if, yeah. it was, if it was overlooked, it's like, well, yeah, but he had a chance to argue. It's not our fault that his lawyers couldn't find it. It had, you know? it had to be like developing a new test for the blood that shows that it did come from the Exactly. Fire. Typically, Innocence Project things, just like Stephen Avery's first case, it's because the science evolves and allows you to do some sort of scientific testing to to determine a different result. Yeah. Um, and I just don't know that that's going to happen here. Yeah. So that's, that's that's a sad note to end on, but I should end this. We've been going on quite a while. Yeah, um, sorry. That's okay, but thank you guys. Hopefully people who were not interested in that tuned out long ago. And I'm very eager to keep talking to you about this more off air, uh, but I should let people go. A pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to us in 2016. 2015 you guys and we look forward to seeing you in the new year from down under next time uh bye kangaroo i guess <laughs> oh best sketch ever see ya <laughs>